emergency medicine extracts with Sanjay and Mike. Dr. Michael Manchin. Dr. Aurora Howard. Good afternoon. It is afternoon on a blistering hot July afternoon. But this is this is really unusual for us. We don't usually do afternoon taping. We almost always tape in the morning, like ninety nine percent of the time. Oh, over the it's last morning. last five years, I don't think we've taped in the after nine in the morning. Yeah, we, yeah, we started about nine. We cruise on through. We have some lunch. Enjoy oh, the rest of our and day. Then just, today, yeah, sunbathe the rest. Today of Today we had to flip the script. Yep. Yeah, we got lots. I got a lot of stuff going on, and I'm trying to compress about six months worth of work into about three weeks. Yeah, and so that is pushing our EMA over and into the afternoon. And thank you for indulging me on that because oh, I yeah. really don't have any. Time no, I'm I'm actually I'm curious to see how it goes because you know maybe this is a new thing. Maybe we do in the afternoon. We sort of we sometimes we get too regiment, too set in our ways, and I'm right. I'm accused of that a lot, actually, yes. <laughs> even outside of this, uh, the EMA sphere and yes, the EMA sphere. I'm a little bit stuck in my way. Not everybody knows that, but he is a very, uh, yes, we, we, I like are, what I like. we've got the yin and yang going there. Cause I'm like, what's my way again? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the heck's going on, but Sanjay is like, boom, he's a taskmaster. Yeah, master. that's right. He's yeah, got I, know, I know what I like. He's like. I stick to it. I don't veer too far from. Uh, I said seven forty-five. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, okay, seven fifty-two, buddy. Yeah, that is quite the 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 difference between the two of us, though, because Mike has many strengths, yes. but organization is not oh, one of them. No. no, if he didn't have somebody on the other end. Oh, you know, and what's tragic about that really is, how do I explain this? My son is a brilliant kid and a really sweet guy. And he suffers from ADD and disorganization like crazy. And he is struggling mightily, consciously to figure it out, right? Like he's trying and and I'm so proud of him because he's like doing it. He's doing the things, you know, he's getting the day planner and he's writing out what he's supposed to do. And it's like, it's really impressive for me to watch him try to struggle through this and to actually make improvements and be doing well in school because of it and all this kind of stuff. It's fantastic. And I feel so bad that it's so obvious that I just yeah. gave that to him. That's your fault. It's a hundred percent Because Heather's fault. the flip. She's absolutely. Heather's quite organized. She's super and organized. And stuff. Absolutely. And you are, uh, what's the expression? A dumpster fire? Is that? Is that... <laughs> I am a absent-minded professor. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's actually a much more, that's a better way of putting it. And, you know, and the thing is, I keep telling my son, I'm like, Honestly, by all means, do this. You know, do the day planner, work on it. I'm, I'm, like I said, I really am tremendously proud of the efforts that he's, you know, that he's doing. But I'm like, you need partners, buddy. You need to find partners who who complement your strengths. You bring good ideas. You have all this other stuff, and that's going to be your contribution to the world. It's not going to be, you know, that you figure you crack the code, you know. Yeah. And I don't know how to message that to him as a parent, like. Exactly. You know, because I want him to improve, but I also don't want him to, to destroy himself trying to be this organized entity yeah. that I know he fundamentally can't it be just like is you. not. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, sort of playing to your strengths while at the same time trying to correct grossly deficient weaknesses. And right. that's a really tough thing as a parent to navigate as a human. But as a parent, it's even tougher because you have such limited control and over it's the so other It's so funny people. for me to, you know, because Mike and I hang out a lot, obviously, outside of these, you know, three hours of taping and to talk about these parental issues and just to see like the completely different, you know, mindset mm-hmm. that you are in, like your problems yeah. versus my problems, which 
eighty percent of them revolve around like sleeping or yes. a, a toilet. Well, that's just, or, <laughs> oh, your your day is coming, my friend. <laughs> yeah, it's not. And with Rhea, could come even sooner. Oh, yeah. she is one of those three going on thirteen types. Oh, she is going to be a colossal pain in the butt. I, you know, now me, I love her and I love all the stuff, and I can't wait to see how difficult it is and what a pain in the rear it is because it's going to be very interesting. And as you know, the affable uncle type. I, yeah, it doesn't. I'm like that's swoop great. in, uh, yeah, yeah. enjoy yeah. the enjoy the magic that is Ray because she is very captivating. Sure, She's absolutely. very engrossing, and then you gone. And I'm going to fully the encourage her to to be herself and do do all those things that is going to drive you crazy. And yeah, it's going to be very enjoyable. Uh, it already has been. Ah, uh, Uncle Mike, <laughs> how we love having, but we do love having you over. So. We're uh, ready to tackle the October taping here. The most wonderful time of the year. Can I just say, it really is, you know, because I love fall. Am I wrong about that? If you had to rate the seasons, where's fall rate? I, I like, I, I, I would prefer, a lot of people like spring. A lot of people do. But I'm a, I, I like the fall as well. I do. I like the temperatures dropping. That's right. The days are still long. I don't like the end of fall. After daylight savings time, I'm, I'm an unhappy yeah, Depending person. on where you live, you got leaves changing yeah. color. It's very yeah. beautiful. Yeah. You got football. You got football. Back. You got Halloween, my favorite holiday. So, Halloween, great holiday. Yeah, so I you do. Got, I agree you. got you. Thanksgiving kind of right at the end of fall. There are pumpkin yeah. patches and stuff. But the fall is great. Fall, I'm like so fun. excited for it to be fall. Love the fall. And yet, it's July and you know, blistering heat. <laughs> yeah, but when we listen to this again for the first time on uh, October, October 1st, 1st. Your birthday. Hey, Happy birthday, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. And Mike, I, I'll listen to it again two weeks later on his birthday on October 15th. Hey, happy birthday, Mike. <laughs> Good job. You live. So, yeah, I'll just be thinking. I just, I love fall. I got to say, favorite time of year. I enjoy it. You know what else I enjoy? Getting some EMA on. Getting it on. That's what I was just going to say. We nice. got this month is solid. Okay. Right? Well, if you, you say know, so yourself. No, but I mean, you know, some months it's like, it is kind of like some obscure journals and stuff like that. This is one of those months where it's a heavy emergency medicine journals. There was just a That's lot correct. of good stuff in annals and academic EM this month. We're going to try to cover the bulk of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 20 papers. With a lot of emergency medicine yeah, focused stuff. Very, very EME. Although there's still a couple things that are general interest kind of things too. Oh yeah, so, I've yeah. got one about uh, allergy prevention I know. in kids, which I is know. that's a this is a, that's a great one. I know, though, you know, I know. Uh, and I've got some stuff about the following residents around with real time locators to yeah, see what they're doing. Yeah, they put those air tags on residents. It turns out that they're all. Uh, smoking doobies up in the call room. And Mike's got that. You've got the big one, right? The uh, the clinical trial, the randomized trial with the oh, fluids, yeah. the fluid and restrictive fluids. fluids. Yeah, you guys are going to hear about that in, during the paper chase segment. That's yeah, this up is early. this so is like a, a, a mega month. And after the twenty, thankfully Jess and Jenny will summarize it all down. Yes, ultra, they'll make all of down. this witty repartee and distill it down to twenty minutes. And then Mel will further ultra ultra summarize it the next month down to ten minutes, which. Actually, makes me feel bad every month. But you know what? I'm going to push forward anyway. Yeah, we got to do the first pass so they can right. do the second and third That's pass. That's right. It's an iterative process, uh, this spaced repetition, that is. And then we've got the time to talk a little nerdy. Triple T-A-L-N. And it Ken. is nerdy. <laughs> and and it, Yeah, because we're back to Ken and Swami. Thank you very much, Chris Carpenter, for showing up. But uh, boom, it's, it's back to ultra nerd. And it's diagnostic uncertainty. Uncertain nerdity. <laughs> 
So look forward to that. Look forward to Time Talk a Little Nerdy. Uh, right. And I'm looking forward to getting started. All right, strap your seatbelts on. Let's go. Pay for chase. Abstract number one. Predictors of laryngospasm during 276,832 episodes of pediatric procedural sedation. This is by Cosgrove et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine. No, I'm sorry. You said two. I'm taking notes. 276,832 is in the title. You know, I'm going to say this. If you want to be a paper chaser, right? You can do something different with the title. That's one. Yeah. Putting the exact number of patients in it, exact, yeah. is very different. I've never seen that before. But a prospectively collected study of a quarter million yeah. patients, that's going to be a paper chaser. Do you think that you would have, I mean, it made the paper chase anyway, but do you think a quarter million patients written like that would be even more like, you know, baller? It'd come off the tongue, roll <laughs> off the tongue a little bit better. So- This is a pretty interesting paper. Of all the potential complications of pediatric procedural sedation, laryngospasm is probably the most serious. It's certainly the one we think about a lot. We don't see it a lot, but I think it's the one kind of in our brains because it introduces the risks of hypoxemia, potentially needing to intubate somebody, bradycardia, aspiration, cardiac arrest. However, risk factors for laryngospasm have been difficult to identify as this is a very rare complication of procedural sedation, making a prospective evaluation challenging because you really would need a large sample size to see any laryngospasm at all. Essentially, all previous publications on the topic because of this problem have been underpowered, and the meta-analyses, where they try to sort of put a bunch of different studies together to come up with an answer, are limited by the facts that each of the studies included has different doses and types of medications used, the patients enrolled were a little bit different, and the outcomes they were looking at and the definitions of those outcomes, how do you define laryngospasm, also different between the different studies. So in this study, the authors analyzed the largest multicenter database of pediatric sedation with the goal of quantifying an accurate prevalence of laryngospasm and performing a predictor analysis of biologically plausible predictors of laryngospasm. So this is a secondary analysis of the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium multicenter database from 64 sites, which include various types of medical care facilities. So it's not just EDs. It's academic hospitals, it's community hospitals, It's freestanding imaging centers, so places where kids could go just to get an MRI or something like that, and even dental offices. Oh, I was going to ask if the dental offices were in there. Yeah, it's got a few more too, so it's it's a pretty wide breadth of places getting these sedations. Similar to NEAR, the sites were mandated to submit full data that was accurate, complete, etc. for more than 90% of their procedural sedations they performed on pediatric patients in order to minimize selection bias. So it wasn't like they were just submitting the easy ones or the hard ones. If you weren't hitting that 90% of all of them, Mark, you're kicked out of this consortium. So they had a bar. They really wanted to get a full picture of what pediatric sedation looked like. The primary outcome of laryngospasm was defined as the complete or near-complete lack of air movement with respiratory effort and with or without strider not relieved by chin repositioning or an oral or nasal airway. As the title states, they report on over a quarter million sedations 
over a seven-year period. That's just like a mind-boggling number. Yeah, we're at a pretty big institution, and we do a lot of sedations. But quarter million feels like a lot. (laughs) I mean, you know, we talk about quarter million patients. These are usually like, you know, they look at like international databases and stuff like that. Yeah, they're usually looking at like population data. Like, you know, like this is how maternal mortality in sub-Saharan Africa (laughs) for this purpose. You know, it really is impressive that this thing was done and got published. Overall, there were 913 kids who had laryngospasm for an overall unadjusted prevalence of 3.3 cases per 1,000 sedations. The most common interventions performed were jaw thrust, about 75%, bag valve mask, 55%, and only 49 kids, or 5%, got endotracheal intubation. Seven kids got a nasotracheal intubation, and cardiac arrest basically occurred in one case overall. So it's 5% of 0.3%. You got it. Okay. They ran a multivariable regression with laryngospasm as a dependent variable and lots of different independent variables at a big sample, including age, ASA category, presence of an upper respiratory infection, location of the procedure, kind of what type of procedure it was, airway procedure, painful procedure, something like that, and the medications used. And they found that a younger age, a higher ASA category, a concurrent respiratory infection, which had an adjusted odds ratio of about four, and an airway procedure being performed, which had an adjusted odds ratio of 3.73, were associated with an increased risk of laryngospasm. So a small airway that's inflamed and that you're mucking with. Yeah, makes sense to me. It's not terribly (laughs) surprising, I guess, but good to see sort of the odds ratios of how more risky is that. And that there's not some weird thing that I wouldn't have anticipated in there, like uh, kids with diabetes, whatever, you know. Great point. So it is things that make sense. Not too surprising. Interestingly, maybe a little bit more surprising, compared with propofol alone, propofol combination regimens had increased risk as well. So propofol plus ketamine, and I know we talk a lot about ketofol, is it better or worse, whatever, had an adjusted odds ratio of laryngospasm of 2.52. Propofol dexmedetomidine, 2.1, and a few other things too. When you put propofol with something, it was worse. They did several sensitivity analyses. They had a lot of data to play with here, including limiting the population to just the ED. So just the ED patients, which actually was a pretty small portion in this overall sample, still large number overall. And ketofol remained an independent predictor of laryngospasm. In case you were curious, in terms of location, speaking of the ED, the ED had the lowest adjusted odds ratio for laryngospasm. Nice job, guys. And the endoscopy suite had the highest. By provider type, ED docs had the lowest unadjusted laryngospasm prevalence, actually zero cases in their study. Really? When an ED doc was doing it in the ED, they didn't see any laryngospasm. I have actually seen this. So I was not, I did not fill out my case report form. I yeah, wasn't we're part not of this site. So yeah, they had but exactly, was, now, you know, of course, it could be yeah. one and make a yeah. difference. But, and the highest were anesthesiologists and intensivists, basically tied for the highest. So this is an absolutely massive data set. And in truth, the statistical methods are stellar. 
But some limitations include that it's observational data, right? We don't know why ketafol or propofol was used in some case, so the findings that they observe might be due to unmeasured confounders. We don't know, like I said, why certain medications were used. There's no controlling for site. We have no information on dosing data. So if, you know, maybe larger doses, they got a bigger dose of overall sedative, and that was the problem and not the combination. And almost half of the sedations, 40-something percent, occurred in radiology departments. So to get an imaging or something, so translating that back to ED patients, that's really, that's really too bad about the dosing issue. Because, you know, my understanding, and again, this is going back a long time since I've really looked into this, is that physiologically, the problem is typically underdosing, right? You're in that mid-sedation phase where the larynx is, gets temporarily activated. I forget what it's called in the anesthesia literature, the second phase or whatever of anesthesia. And I wonder if that's in radiology suites, they're, you know, they're nervous and they worry. And so they give a little less, whereas we're, you know, I think we're pretty comfortable and we probably give heavy doses. I typically give pretty heavy doses of things and I'm very eager to give enough to make sure they are down. And I'm less worried about having to take an airway because I know how to do it. No, I think Um, that's, I think that's an excellent point. And I wish they gave it too. That's why it's a big limitation. You know, another thing to think about here is that Although the identified high-risk features did generate statistically significant increases in odds, right? These like four times odds and stuff like that. The absolute differences were very, very small because laryngospasm itself is just so rare. So you're kind of going from like super duper duper rare to super duper rare. Right. Still probably not worth freaking out about one way or the other. (laughs) Yeah. I think that, you know, the clinical significance of it is a little bit questionable. I, I'm sure they have it. I'm sure they have data on other adverse events, right? Because they were just looking at laryngospasm. What about just hypoxia? What about hypotension? What about, I hope that they have that stuff. I hope it's coming because this is just too rich of a data set to leave with just this one. Study. Yeah. And if they do have that, I'm going to recommend that they put in the title, predictors of hypotension during a quarter million episodes of pediatric if, procedural sedation. If they could do the Mike Myers little yeah. twist up of the pinky. Yeah, that's exactly what I was that'd thinking. That'd be even better. Editor's commentary. In this massive report of over a quarter million pediatric sedations, the authors report statistically higher odds of laryngospasm in younger kids, those with higher ASA scores, respiratory infections, getting airway procedures, and when using combination of sedation agents like ketafol. But the absolute differences were very small, bringing into question the magnitude of the clinical impact. I still think it's good to be aware of these high-risk features before starting a sedation, and I would be curious to know if other, more common adverse events were also associated with them, which might change the way I practice and the medications that I choose. Abstract number two, restriction of IV fluid in ICU patients with septic shock. This is by Myhoff et al., and this is in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, it appears as though we're attempting to go full circle with the fluid management of sepsis, from what I can tell. So if you recall, for those of us who are- Well, it's all of it, right? You just take early, here's the plan. You make early growth therapy the standard, and then every four years, you take an axe to one component of it. Peel it off. Yeah, if you're- Old enough, so there's a sweet spot here, right? You have to be old enough to remember this, but not too old so that you can no longer remember things. 
And I am like on the edge of that latter part at yeah, well, this point. Well, you're two years closer than I am, as everybody knows. <laughs> it's not two years. It's one year and 350 days. Well played. <laughs> so anyway, you know, around 2000-ish, at that point, there was basically very little actually regarding the initial care of septic patients beyond sort of, you know, guidelines that said, you know, give antibiotics at some point. They didn't even really have time associated with that. And then early goal-directed therapy changed all of that and placed a really heavy emphasis on aggressive fluid management, along with many other things that have largely been chopped off. The surviving sepsis campaign basically still fully endorses that fluid management strategy, and CMS now makes giving an initial bolus of 30 cc's per kilo for septic patients part of performance metrics for patients, at least with septic shock. Recently, the evidence for this aggressive approach has been challenged. There have been a number of observational studies showing that larger amounts of IV fluids administered is associated with worse outcomes among ICU patients with septic shock. These observational studies have been criticized for confounding by indication, right? That is, that people with more severe sepsis got more IV fluids, and it's the sepsis that's causing the higher mortality, not the IV fluid. That's just a confounder. There have been a few small randomized controlled trials that have been performed, but the data is inconsistent and basically unconvincing. And then there was a meta-analysis that sort of said what meta-analyses usually say, you know, the data is not very good. We need an RCT. And then somebody, Dr. Myhoff et al., went ahead and said, well, if we need an RCT, let's go ahead and do that RCT. And that's what this is. And this is the conservative versus liberal approach to fluid therapy and septic shock use in the ICU. Go on. Can you figure out what the acronym is? Conservative, liberal approach, septic shock, ICU. It's pretty, they do a good job. Confi. Classic. Classic. Conservative versus liberal approach to fluid therapy. We skipped those. In uh, septic shock in the IC. Classic. Not bad, guys. Kudos to you. So this is a multinational ICU-based study of patients with septic shock randomized to usual care versus this restrictive IV fluid strategy. They included patients, adult patients with septic shock, and they defined that by sort of some of our standard definitions, which include there's a suspected source of infection, there's a lactate greater than two, they're in the ICU, and importantly, they had to be on vasopressor or inotropic support, okay? So they're, you know, relatively sick people. Shock had to have started within 12 hours of uh, enrollment, and subjects in the restrictive therapy arm were only supposed to get IV fluids if they had clear signs of hypoperfusion. And that means like systolic blood pressure less than 50, mottled skin to above the knee, very low urine output, like less than 0.1 cc's per kilo per hour, or if they had obvious signs of dehydration or to maintain at least one liter of IV fluids daily. So those were the criteria. Otherwise, you weren't supposed to give IV fluids, and they could get some parenteral fluids, but not IV. Right. So it's just, we flood them with fluids, or we give IV fluids when needed. But when with a really, really restricted thing. Not like, oh, he hasn't had anything to eat I or drink you. today. So I just want to make sure that the, the, the restrictive flavor, is quite restrictive. It is very restrictive. Exactly. The usual care group got fluids totally at the discretion of the treating clinicians. And clinicians, importantly, were not blinded to treatment allocation because obviously that'd be very difficult to do, but the outcome assessors were. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality at 90 days, 
And secondary outcomes included the development of a severe acute kidney injury, ischemia to the brain, heart, or limbs, and the number of days alive without life support within those 90 days. This was a really large study. It occurred over 31 centers in eight European countries from 2018 through 2021. Interestingly, they screened 2,200 patients and they enrolled 1,500 patients, which is an incredibly high enrollment rate. Usually you see things like, we screened 2,000 people and we enrolled 300. You know, so really, really high thing, which actually probably means that the, the findings are fairly generalizable because it really did incorporate a lot or capture a lot of patients. 770 roughly in each arm, mean age was 70. Sepsis was most commonly from a GI source. So about 40%, meaning, and that's intra-abdominal abscesses and things like that, or a pulmonary source, about 30%, pneumonia, et cetera. Outcomes, identical across the two groups. Totally identical. Same, same, same. You can't, I mean, you can't split this fine enough. 42% mortality in each group. Secondary outcomes, including the development of that kidney injury. They happen 23% of the time, but the same between the two groups, all the other stuff. MI, brain injury, et cetera, all the same, all the same, all the same. For what it's worth, the restrictive therapy group did have substantially less fluid administered because another way to get same, same is for them to say, I don't care if you tell me this, I'm not supposed to get fluids, I'm going to get fluids. And on average, they had about two liters less IV fluids over the first five days compared to the other group. And just so we understand this, the other group did not get flooded with IV fluids. So the usual care group had on average just about four liters of fluids given IV through the first five days of enrollment. And the restrictive therapy group was at just about two liters. So they gave half. But just the point is that the usual care group was already kind of light. You know, it wasn't like they were really flooding patients. There were no subgroups of patients that seemed to be particularly benefited or harmed by the restrictive therapy approach. What else can I say? This is a really good study. There was really good adherence to the treatment protocol. It was performed across a wide array of countries and most people screened were enrolled and it did not work. This level of severe fluid restriction did not cause improved outcomes. That said, let's not interpret this to mean that one cannot drown people with excess fluid. The amounts given in the study are relatively modest and do not suggest that more is better either. Just that, you know, extreme restriction is not better either. The study ultimately does not suggest the need for immediate change in ED practice. Could it hurt a particular subset of people who are prone to volume overload to give them too much? Of course, that's possible. So be thoughtful, but continue administering fluids to support blood pressure and hydration and be comfortable that giving a little too much is not likely to cause harm, at least on average. Editor's commentary. This is a very large, well-conducted, multinational, randomized controlled trial comparing a strategy of restrictive IV fluids to usual care for adult ICU patients with septic shock. The study was driven by observation that higher amounts of IV fluids have been associated with higher mortality in similar patients. This study, however, found no difference in mortality or any other secondary outcomes between the liberal and conservative approaches to fluid management. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Restrictive fluids versus standard care in adults with sepsis in the ED, a multi-center randomized feasibility trial 
This is by Jessen et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. No, this is not the same paper that it's we not, just It's not just two. the the paper, but they looked at just those that came through the ED. Yeah, that's like that this would be is, that's what I is, would do. This is quite intentional placement of this paper yes. for Mike and I because that was the issue with the last one. Is it it's in the ICU? Mm-hmm. How applicable is that to sort of most people listening to this? Well, this paper tackles the same issue in the ED. So sepsis, obviously commonly encountered in our practice, and the basics of treatment are fluids, antibiotics, source control, and then supportive measures. And despite pervasive and very strong recommendations for aggressive fluid resuscitation, the data on exactly how much is right is actually quite limited. And an accurate understanding of this is important because too little fluid might lead to impaired perfusion, but too much might at least theoretically cause volume overload. Now, Mike just covered one paper on this topic, the newest and biggest, but several other recent studies have been performed, as he alluded to, saying that limiting fluids might have a little bit of benefit, or at least equivalence, but none of them prior to this one have actually been conducted exclusively in the emergency department. So, this is the Restrictive Fluid Administration versus Standard of Care in the ED Sepsis Patient acronym. Refaced. Refaced. I know. I know it's in the title. No, it's in the title. The other one wasn't. Yeah, the other one wasn't. So this is the refaced, which they describe as a feasibility trial. Just sort of put that right up front in this. (laughs) Conducted a test of a restrictive IV fluid protocol in ED patients with sepsis without shock is feasible and could decrease the volume of IV fluids administered compared with standard care. So this is not septic shock. This is a multi-center randomized open-label parallel group trial from Denmark assigning patients to a 24-hour restrictive fluid protocol versus standard care. The inclusion criteria were uh, unplanned ED admission, age greater than 18 years, sepsis, which was defined like in the other paper, pretty standard, infection suspected by the treating clinician, blood cultures were drawn, and IV antibiotics were given or planned, and they had an infection-related increase in their SOFA score. Also, I had an expected hospital stay of greater than 24 hours. That's how they got into the trial. And then in the restrictive fluid group, the protocol was that very similar to the other one. You don't get fluids unless one of the hypoperfusion criteria were met. So that's lactate greater than four. Here, the hypotension cutoff was SBP less than 90. Same modeling beyond the edge of the kneecap, severe oliguria, less than 0.1 ml per kg per hour during the first four hours of admission. So if any of those were met, they said, give a 250cc bolus of something. Little bolus. Little bolus. And it was a could. You didn't have to either. You could still have your, you know, clinician decide what you want to do. So of the 383 patients that met inclusion criteria, 124 were enrolled and randomized. The median age was 76, 58% male. As this was a feasibility trial, as stated very clearly in the introduction section, the primary outcome was related to study procedures. Basically, would ED docs even do this? Like, right. Well, we talked about the last them? one. If they're yeah. just not going to do it, then, you know, you can't. They're just, I'm giving fluids no matter what, buddy. So that's what they were focused on. So this isn't meant to be a clinical practice changer, but it's a good follow-up to the other paper. They found that at 24 hours, the mean IV crystalloid fluid volume given were just over 500 mLs in the restrictive group versus just over 1,300 mLs in the standard care. It was a mean difference of 800 mLs, which was a statistically significant difference between the two groups. 
protocol violations occurred in about a third of the patients in the restrictive group, where you know they kind of just went back to their old habits. And they reported on that with a little bit of emphasis because, again, this is a feasibility trial. Although not really powered to evaluate or, in truth, designed to study clinical outcomes, they reported no significant differences between groups in use of mechanical ventilation, use of vasopressors, new onset acute kidney failure at seven days, in-hospital length of stay, or 30-day or 90-day mortality. But again, that's not what the trial was designed to do. But at least it's consistent with the previous study. I mean, yeah, if we're talking right. about adding up all this data so that we're not, you know, you know and as because people are starting to, to talk about this. I mean, that New England Journal paper is going to really like resonate with some mm-hmm. people that maybe we're doing this wrong. And I think that's probably why the authors pushed this to get published too, like basically in the same month. And Although they only enrolled about a third of eligible patients, unlike your study, which was like three quarters or something like that, but a third is about right. That's what we normally That's what we see. see. Yeah. They still got 120. You know how long it took them to enroll those 124 patients? Uh, I would say it's one site. One site. I would think it took them a year. Six yeah. weeks. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> no, it wasn't one site. It was a multi-center trial. Okay. You said that, actually. Yeah. But still. But six weeks. That's pretty fast. Yeah. That's pretty fast. So to me, if they're talking about feasibility, that's probably the most important stat in the papers. They yeah. got 120-some-odd patients in just six weeks in their little consortium in Denmark. There's no question to me that this trial is coming. The ED trial probably is going to be- already done it. Yeah. <laughs> by the time you hear this, yeah. probably already done and published. These guys are so good and so fast. So, you know- this fluid management strategy stuff is going to become a big question mark soon. I think it's good to know all the papers, especially the one done in the ED. Editor's commentary. The question of how much fluids is best for patients with sepsis and septic shock is an open one. And to date, no published trials have really focused on care in the emergency department. In this feasibility study, the authors show that enrolling patients in the ED is possible and providers will largely follow a restrictive fluid protocol if patients are assigned to that group. There's no question that these researchers will follow up this paper with a trial powered to evaluate clinical outcomes, but they were similar across the groups in this trial, at least no massive differences. So stay tuned and we will present the patient-focused data from this group as soon as it becomes available. Abstract number four, effective point-of-care testing for respiratory pathogens on antibiotic use in children, a randomized controlled trial. This is by Matilla et al., and it's in JAMA Network Open. This is the second study we've seen recently on this topic. I can't exactly remember when the first one was of several, but it was within the past several months. And it's so similar to the previous study in terms of the journal. That one was also published in JAMA Network Open and in title that I really had to do a double check and check through the old files to make sure it wasn't the same study itself. But it's not. It is a different study. Yeah, because that was a Kaiser study from what I remember. I th- you might be right. I can't remember anymore, but I did verify. We're, not, we're talking about different things, which is good because the outcomes are, or the findings are a little different. The principle is fairly straightforward. Children come in febrile with respiratory symptoms all the time. Most of the time it's caused by a virus, but we're often not sure And this leads to a large amount of unnecessary antibiotic prescribing, at least many have argued that. Some estimates suggest that as many as 70% of these children get antibiotics. That's a lot. I don't think that's true, but that's what they cite. And also, this uncertainty may contribute to diagnostic testing that might not be necessary, chest x-rays to evaluate for pneumonia, etc. 
Rapid viral PCR testing, at least in theory, could reduce unnecessary antibiotic therapy and possibly other diagnostic testing if the etiology of the infection could be determined to be viral very quickly. One of the challenges is that physicians do not like to order these tests because they take a while to come back, usually more than 90 minutes. It's just, for a snoppy-nosed kid, it's just faster to make a clinical decision and get the patient on their way, even if that means occasionally, you know, prescribing unnecessary antibiotics or ordering, you know, a marginal chest x-ray. Yeah, I guess the question is, though, how occasional, right? If it's like, well, if it's 70%, then it's crazy. Then we need something. Right. So that point is correct. To counter that, some have argued that, okay, fine, we appreciate it. Nobody wants to sit around the ER for two extra hours when, you know, and, snot, and get everybody else infected with these things and then, you know, have that whole cycle go on. So what if you just make the viral test an order from triage by nursing, such that it has a reasonable likelihood of being resulted when the patient is actually seen by the clinician, right? Makes a certain amount of sense. But essentially, you're talking about undifferentiated kids at this point, right? They got URIs maybe, but a provider has not assessed whether they actually need this test. So in this study, children presenting with fever and or URI symptoms were randomized to get, it was from a single site, I should say, a single pediatric ED, and they were randomized in a two-to-one ratio to get a nurse-driven nasopharyngeal swab and the point-of-care PCR capable of detecting 18 viral pathogens or usual care. The primary outcome was the prescription of oral antibiotics on an intent-to-treat basis, and secondary outcomes included the ED length of stay and other diagnostic tests that were used, chest x-ray being the main one. The study was performed from 2019 through 2020, so basically pre-COVID and in Finland. Go figure. 1,400 patients were screened, 1,200 were enrolled, 800 in the intervention group, and 400 in the control. Remember, it was a two-to-one ratio. The mean age was three years old, and more than 75% had no underlying medical conditions. So these are snoppy-nosed young kids that are basically otherwise generally healthy. 99.8% of those who were assigned to the intervention group got the point-of-care multiplex PCR, and only 1% in the control group got that test. So they were very adherent to their treatment allocation. Antibiotic prescription, same, same. So 27% in the intervention group, 28% in the control group. Interestingly, the use of radiologic imaging also did not differ across the groups, nor did the cost of ED visits. So it was same, 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 same. The length of stay was a little bit longer by about 20 minutes in the group that got the multiplex point of care PCR. They don't go into that, but I'm sure it's because they're just waiting for the results on occasion. Overall, this is another negative result for the non-targeted use of these viral uh, respiratory panels in children. It just did not result in a change in the use of antibiotics or diagnostic testing. And this is very different than in adults where point-of-care rapid influenza testing, just influenza testing, forget about all the other things, has been shown very consistently to reduce you know, antibiotic use, to speed their work up through the ED. And you kind of wonder, well, why would that be? You know, and I think it's because it's pretty obvious most of the time with these kids that it's viruses, right? And that like you really just don't need anything. A snoppy-nosed kid comes in, you just don't need anything else to do. And this other stuff just sort of clouds it or delays things. 
I still think there's a role for these viral tests, but it should probably be among people in whom the provider is really torn between whether to prescribe or not. Most cases are obviously viral and prescribing is not even on the table. For some cases, prescribing is going to happen regardless. You know, the kid looks actually pretty ill, you know, relatively ill. Maybe they got the chest x-ray. There's infiltrates on the chest x-ray. I, you know, I mean, like, be realistic, right? If you got infiltrates on a chest x-ray and the kid looks kind of sickish, not, you know, deathly ill, but a little bit sick, you're going to give them antibiotics regardless of whether it says they've got, you know, whatever these parainfluenza viruses are or not. So maybe just the group in which it's potentially useful is just so small it gets kind of drowned out. Yeah, and I think it also, I agree with you completely. I still think the tests have value, and it probably just depends a little bit on how you define useful, right? Because here they're focusing on an antibiotic stewardship, kind of an approach, which is, right. you know, important and we need to do it and stuff like that. But there is this value too of, you know, being able to tell the parent, hey, this is a virus. You know, we found it. We found a virus. Yeah, but you can don't tell go, them that without it. I tell them, this is a virus. Uh, come on, I found it. I understand. <laughs> but, you know, there is something about, like, you know, if you're trying to prevent, like you often talk about, you know, the next time they yeah. come, you know, they'll be like, maybe that'll stick a little, resonate a little bit more. Yeah. Like, no, they did a test. It, it, I saw it. I saw the result. It was a virus. Maybe I don't have to come back the next time looking for antibiotics or ask another doctor for antibiotics. I was so mad at this doctor for not giving them to me. So I think that there is there's yeah. some comfort in knowing too. Like, and I'm not saying do it on everybody, yeah. but I think it has to do with that sort of that targeted approach you're saying. There's yeah. like it's gonna be maybe there's gray cases and maybe there's cases where a parent is just like, I want antibiotics for this kid, and you know it's not indicated, and you do a test and it's negative. Maybe you save antibiotics that way. I'm just saying it's, there's multiple ways to think about it. It is possible. And like I said, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think there's a, a role for it. You know, I worry that people are like, yeah, but we just want to know. And you know, it's like that, it's stuff like that that results in like enormous cost and waste in our health system, which, you know, I just don't think we need to do. So I, I do put a pretty high bar for incorporating a new diagnostic strategy and it should outperform our existing diagnostic strategy. And I'm just saying that you know, now we got two studies. The other one actually showed that it increased antibiotic prescribing. We got two studies that show it doesn't decrease it when it's applied in this sort of non-targeted way. If a clinician feels like I need to know this to solve whatever clinical conundrum, you know, a, an angry parent or a, a confused doctor, you got some weird information coming from different directions about x-ray findings and this and that and the other thing. I, I have no problem with it there. And I think it probably does work there. This is just a, you know, a cautionary tale that it probably doesn't work for everybody and shouldn't be incorporated into your triage protocols, for but example. I, I think we both can agree that these both these studies, Kaiser get on the horn, these authors get on the horn, have to be repeated after COVID. After COVID messed up everything. <laughs> yeah, because now we do it for a whole we, different reason. Now we do it for an ankle sprain. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. Editor's commentary. This randomized controlled trial showed that indiscriminate Viral testing for children with fever or URI initiated at triage did not result in fewer antibiotic prescriptions, less use of chest x-rays, or faster throughput in the ED. Future studies should focus on using this type of technology in children at higher risk for unnecessary antibiotics. Abstract number five. Intranasal topical application of TXA in atraumatic anterior epistaxis, a double-blind randomized clinical trial, and this is by Hosseini al-Hashemi et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine. 
I think you, I think you did a good job with that name. I, Thank you. I, I mean, I don't know. Dr. Hosemi Al-Hashemi, Al- please let us know. Hosemi. Yes. Hosemi. Yeah, it's Hosemi Al-Hashemi. I did the best I could. Yeah, so, I want to know how well we did. We here, tried. Here we go again, right? Another TXA. It's like- Because you just told me it doesn't work. I know I did. I know I did. Are All you, right. So- Are you or Dr. Hosemi Al-Hashemi calling me a liar? So, <laughs> I'm I call myself a liar. A liar. So, I recently covered a meta-analysis on the use of TXA for epistaxis, and although the authors concluded it was associated with improved bleeding cessation, it wasn't convincing to me because they excluded the NOPAC randomized controlled trial, which has also been covered on this program, which was negative. And also, this meta-analysis had other problems of highly heterogeneous control arms and outcomes in unblinded trials at high risk of bias. Regardless, regardless of what, you know, the blogosphere says about this stuff, the practice is definitely gaining in popularity and has become a highly controversial topic. Even in RED, in the clinical areas, you see like oh, residents- People are fighting. Yeah. They're giving is, each other- Most of the nosebleeds we see in our <laughs> department- were caused Are caused over fights related to <laughs> the treatment of nosebleeds. Yeah. It's a fascinating it's a, yeah, it's epidemiologic a, yeah. statistic. <laughs> The authors of this study say, hey, there's enough uncertainty here as to we need another randomized trial with the primary outcome of the clinical one need for anterior PAC, the same outcome as used in the NOPAC trial that we say sort of set the standard on this topic. Secondary outcomes, including staying in the ED for more than two hours, needing electrical cauterization, rebleeding within 24 hours after referral to their ENT ED, and rebleeding in one to seven days. So this is a double-blind randomized control trial from what they describe as a single ENT emergency department in Iran. And they kind of give a little description of what that is. And it almost sounds like a little freestanding ENT hospital that sort of does everything internally. So it looks like it's a hospital that only sees ENT patients, both walk-in and referrals from local general EDs with five ED beds, they're calling it ED, but it seems more like an acute treatment area kind of a bed, 26 ward beds, and an OR. That's all for ENT stuff. They wow. enrolled- I'm a, just like trying to picture the I catchment am area. I am too. that would be like Los Angeles. So that's San definitely, if, if you're going to be a hater on TXA, this is what you're going to focus on, mm-hmm. is that this is a weird place. Right with maybe a weird set of patients I don't totally right, understand. post-op cases. Because I don't understand like what the case is. They weren't definitely not a lot of post-op stuff. They enrolled adult patients with atraumatic epistaxis not controlled by putting pressure on the nose for a certain number of minutes. So that's a little bit similar to NOPAC, but a little different because they also did topical stuff. You had to kind of fail a first line in NOPAC. But I like this. Yeah. I li- I, this, this is the is, one I like. It's like I do, too. Do it for 15 minutes. If it's still bleeding, okay, now we got to do stuff. And this is where, even when I've talked about NOPAC before, I've said this is the question, right? It's maybe we can all agree it's not going to work after like putting a bunch of vasoconstrictors and stuff up there. But right up front, mm-hmm. you know, we can't squeeze the nose, doesn't work. Should I use TXA at this moment or should I not? Right, because you know? the question does come up like, oh, there are always old people with hypertension. Is it okay to give them this? oxymetolazone and stuff, you know, because you know, once you've gone into that phase of getting right. all that, but so well, you can give. The, unfortunately, they don't answer that here. Let me get into it a little bit. So the excluded patients with nasal malignancy, to your point, so didn't have that, who are unstable and who are on anticoagulants. So unlike NOPAC, they excluded those patients here. 
all patients had cotton pledgets placed in the nostril for 15 minutes soaked with either phenylephrine and lidocaine, which was their control group, or soaked with TXA and phenylephrine and lidocaine. So everybody got some vasoconstrict. They got phenylephrine in there, but the difference was whether or not they got TXA. They randomized 240 patients in just over a month. 240 patients. You heard me. patients in a month. From September From 1st. site. And hold on, this is going to blow your mind too. From September 1st, 2021 to November 10th, 2021. So in like 40 days, And not that was like eight months ago. This trial was done and published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, which Mike and I know as researchers, that takes a long time to go through a million rounds of revisions. So this is like really impressive work. Follow-up rate, this was their report, 100%. Of course. Patients in the TXA arm had lower rates of anterior packing, 50% versus 64.2%, so an odds ratio of 0.56 a stay in the ED of more than two hours and an odds ratio of 0.38, the chance of developing re-bleeding at 24 hours at an odds ratio of 0.4, and there were no statistically significant differences in need for electrical cauterization or rate of re-bleeding within seven days of discharge from this ENT ED. But looking at the raw numbers, they all favored the TXA group pretty heavily. There were no major or minor adverse events in either group. So in truth, the quality of the methods of this trial is excellent. They really are very well laid out, did the protocol in advance, kept the blinding all the way through. It's a really well-done randomized control trial. The real limitations are that the enrollment occurred during RA availability hours. Like that, you know, we see that sometimes in trials. More people? I know. And again, maybe due to the nature of the site and some exclusion criteria, the population was a little bit different than in previous papers. They talk about the NOPAC study. This is a very well-written paper, too. They talk about the NOPAC study in great detail in their discussion section. And although they point out some minor differences in terms of, well, we use it as first line. They point out even the inclusion. They talk about everything, and they're like, at the end of the day, we just found something different. That's kind of what they say. We just found that it worked. You know, they did this thing and said very definitively that it doesn't. And we're going to go ahead and say it definitively does. So I think... Now, NOPAC was a little bigger, right? It was yes. Like 400 or 50, four, something like that. Pay, NOPAC pay. was bigger. The patients were a little bit older. Yeah, they uh, they were on anticoagulants. They were on anticoagulants. So it was definitely different. But and I, you know, I'm wondering now, because a lot of the early RCTs that we covered on this way back in the day... We're out of Iran, and I wonder if they're coming from this side. I just don't know. You know, I don't remember the authors' names and such. But it, it's like it's just there's something so weird about this. The number of people it almost sounds you know one of these you too know, good to be true kind of things. And I, I have said to, that. I have to say for me because I thought about this paper a lot after I read it, and I still think that I'm internally consistent with my message from previous. I think the message from NoPack is as a hail mary. TXA probably doesn't have a lot of value, but maybe when you use it up front, it does. Yeah. And I, I think I'm very comfortable with that message. I think this is going to, those, those nosebleed fights that we've been seeing in the ED over this issue are definitely going to get worse now. But this, they'll get better because now you'll give them all TXA. you give them all TXA. 
this is a really mm. good trial. Yeah. If you're interested in this topic, this is one that... But okay, a couple of things I want to say about this. I just want to emphasize, you said that the pack rate was 50% versus 64%, right? Yes. So roughly, is that approximately right? So, you know, most of these people still get packed. We should remind, remember that. It isn't the, a magic bullet in that sense. The number needed to treat sounds like it's like seven or something like that, which is worth doing. Don't get me wrong. I think TXA is fairly close to a free lunch, right? Tox, topical TXA. I mean, I get it. So I just want to sort of point those things out that it's not, it's not, you know, it's going to work on all these patients. You as an individual clinician probably won't be able to detect the difference, you know, but maybe one in seven won't require packing. Editor's commentary. Just when you thought the door was closed on TXA for epistaxis, the authors from this extremely well-conducted, randomized, double-blind study from Iran present data suggesting that TXA does have value in addition to phenylephrine and lidocaine when compared with phenylephrine and lidocaine alone in improving highly clinical outcomes, including the need for packing. All outcomes, including ED length of stay and rebleed rates, favored the TXA group. I'm torn on this topic now and expect to see even more papers on it as the debate between TX-NAY versus TX-YAY rages on. Abstract number six, catching those who fall through the cracks, integrating a follow-up process for emergency department patients with incidental radiologic findings. This is by Barrett et al., and it's in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. I love this concept. Can we just uh, say hi to Tyler first? Yeah, it's written by an old friend, Tyler Barrett. Tyler, Tyler was one of my co-chief residents at uh, UCLA. Yeah, and, one of my underlings. Yeah, that's true. Mike is older, as he keeps reminding us for unclear reasons. But Tyler, I don't know if you're a listener of the program. You better be. Hello. Yeah. And to all his co-authors from Vanderbilt. Hello. Hello as well. <laughs> so the point is that we do a lot of advanced radiographic studies in the ED, and, you know, this has dramatically increased in recent decades. This is great, you know, ish. We can much more easily and rapidly identify a host of diseases. And as, you know, as a consequence, it's less great because it results in a huge number of incidental findings with varying clinical relevance that should get follow-up. Studies of trauma patients indicate that somewhere in the range of 20 to 40% of patients who undergo trauma scans have an incidental finding. And about one in five of those findings, so one in five of 40, so like maybe 8%, 4 to 8% of all trauma patients, have one that's considered clinically important, but not emergent, unrelated to their trauma. As you all expect and know, we do a less than stellar job of communicating these findings to patients, which could result in patient harm and potentially malpractice risk for us and you know, for us as ED clinicians. And we recently covered a paper about folks with strokes that had, you know, got head scans and they had old strokes. And, you know, basically we never told them that they had an old stroke, which might affect their ability to do risk factor modification. Things and like I that. think we can all relate to this because like you said, as these scanners get better and better and we go fishing more, we catch more fish. So yeah. this is, this is like a daily practice thing for me where a resident will say like, uh, you know, we didn't find the, the PE we were looking for, but we found this. There's a granular what, little nodule. Yeah. What am I supposed to do with this incidental OMA? And you're like, mm, tell them. You yeah, know, and it's or tough. Don't you tell know, them, and the or, patients yeah. don't, you know, it's really tough because, you know, the patients are in there and the ER is three in the morning. You've given them some morphine for pain. They don't, you know, it's like it's really easy to screw up this communication. 
So Vanderbilt University Hospital ED, in conjunction with the Department of Radiology and their IT gurus, developed a unique system to identify patients with incidental findings and refers those patients to case managers who were then charged with notifying the patients of the findings and coordinating some level of follow-up. And by coordinating, they sort of said, you should go see your doctor, or you should do this, or you should do that. The program is such that when a radiologist sees a significant incidental finding, they flag it as critical, and the ED doc has to clear it from the EHR before they can be discharged. So to do this, the ED doc has to click on some boxes, and that routes the case to a case manager, depending on exactly what that sort of critical finding is. And it's a little tricky to tell exactly how this worked here, but it sounds like if they click the box and it's like, okay, you have a pulmonary nodule, then the ED doc would say, okay, this is like a non-emergency thing. And they would refer it to either, you know, their PMD and they had an option to refer to an oncology specialist or whatever else. And that's what they would do. And then the case manager picked up the ball from there. The manuscript provides a general description of how successful the program was during a one-year period between May 2020 and June 2021. The study itself is a retrospective cohort review of these cases. Over the 13 months, there were 932 critical incidental radiology alerts generated, which is just under 1.5% of all of the patients that showed up to their ED. The authors, unfortunately, do not categorize what the incidental findings were. They just don't tell us. It's not like a table one of nodule versus broken rib or whatever. It doesn't say that. And I would have loved to see that just so I could have a better understanding what they're dealing with. But I will say this, it has a very cancer flavor, this paper. And it's little things here and there, how it's written, including that it was presented at an oncologic meeting and not at like ASEP initially. So I have a sense that they're talking about suspicious nodules and things like that, but that's just not fully characterized. Overall, the authors were able to confirm that for 95% of these critical incidental findings, there was a documented communication to the patient with the follow-up plan by those case managers. It's not clear how many patients actually adhered to that follow-up plan, but I will stipulate that it's hard to adhere to the follow-up plan if you don't have a follow-up plan. So this is a, a good first step. The chance of successful notification was markedly higher for patients in their Vanderbilt health system at 99% versus those who were out of network, in which case it was about 88%. Still very high, but there was a a drop-off. The study is a bit of a proof of concept and can't really determine how successful the intervention was because there's no control phase. There's no control group. There's no comparisons. Further, the solution still relies on the radiologist noting the finding is critical and performing the read contemporaneous to the patient visit. And that may not always be the case, right? Like, for example, that is definitely not always the case at our institution. So additional strategies might be needed to deal with, you know, institutions that have those challenges. But as I said at the outset, I truly love this idea. And I think that building in systems to alert and inform patients about unexpected abnormal findings is really important in the next step of, you know, sort of emergency medicine integration into a sort of more patient-centered medical environment. Editor's commentary. This study explores the effectiveness of a sophisticated ED-based program aimed at informing patients that a critical but incidental finding was observed during their ED evaluation and communicating a follow-up plan. In the single-site 
retrospective cohort study, the authors observed that 95% of such findings were communicated to the patient using their system. The system was fairly involved and there was no control, so it remains unknown how effective this was compared to historical approaches or other potential strategies. Still, it represents an important attempt to systematize an approach to incidental findings. Abstract number seven. Early food intervention and skin emollients to prevent food allergy in young children, the prevent ADL, a multifactorial, multicenter, cluster randomized trial, and this is by Skadriven et al. from Lancet. So hearing the title, you may think, hey, I'm an EM provider. Hey, sometimes this you have a precipitous delivery of a newborn baby, <laughs> yeah. and it's how like, is this, get that skin emollient on there. How on earth is this going to apply to me? This applies, uh, this is one of those general medicine information papers that is like all over the news. This is actually like a kind of a big deal study. And it is worth knowing about a lot of people on this thing are parents or going to be parents or grandparents or have patients asking mm-hmm. questions about this stuff. So this is one that's worth taking a second Some to of understand. us have annoying brothers and sisters that ask us every question under the sun. Is well, well said. <laughs> I didn't even go into that. Assuming that we know everything about pediatrics. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we answer with a lot of confidence, even oh, if we have absolutely. no idea. So let this paper give you some confidence. So for many, many years, and probably this is true, Mike, when uh, Tom and Sophia were born, it was thought to be best to avoid food-based allergens in infancy. Like you're supposed to give peanut butter very late and give egg very late to decrease allergy development. That was like the thought forever, Yeah. right? I don't Uh, even know what the thought was. I thought the thought was that like, well, you just don't want to have anaphylaxis with a little tiny baby. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. And the thought was you never introduce the allergen. You can't get an IgE-mediated response. Who knows? You know, forever that was the thought. But then- the new school way of thinking is actually to do it early. Flip it. Flip it completely. So this is based on data from the LEAP trial in 2015, which showed the introduction of peanuts between four and 10 months of age in children who are at high risk of allergy prevented a peanut allergy in 80% of said children. And then there was a follow-up trial called the EAT trial, where normal risk children were started on six allergenic foods at three months of age And although the results suggested a reduction in peanut and egg allergies, they failed to meet their pre-specified primary endpoint, so kind of a sort of a neutral trial. To provide more conclusive data on the value of early food introduction among low-risk infants, these authors from Scandinavia designed a two-by-two cluster-randomized multi-center controlled superiority trial. They randomized about 2,400 newborn infants to one of four arms. No intervention. A skin intervention, which was bath additives and moisturizing to decrease atopic dermatitis, which is known to be a risk factor for the development of allergies. The food intervention, which was the early introduction of peanuts, cow's milk, wheat, and eggs starting at three months. Or the fourth group was both. They did the creams and the food. The foods ate it and you bathed in it. That's right. (laughs) But in the mouth and on the skin. Yeah. The foods were introduced between 12 and 16 weeks of age, and basically at the three-month visit, they gave peanut butter for the first time, the following week was cow's milk, the following week was wheat porridge, and the following week, the fourth week, was scrambled eggs. And patients were instructed to let the infant basically taste a little bit of the food, kind of off the, the finger of a parent. And, you know, when we were, had Ray and Ravi, our pediatrician was very into this, and they were like, no, you know, you... Put a little bit of peanut butter on your finger, like what we do with Toby, like our doggy, 
like let the baby like lick the peanut butter a little bit. That's what they were supposed to do four days a week in addition to their regular feeding. An allergy to any of the interventional foods at 36 months was higher in both of the non-food introduction groups. So the bathing and the control. That's correct. Okay. At 2.3% and 3% than in either of the food groups, 0.9% and 1.2%. The difference was largely driven by a reduction in peanut allergy, which is good. That's a good thing. And to a lesser amount, egg allergy. Right. But peanut's the one that like causes problems and results in kids having to exist in nut-free zones and stuff That's like exactly that. exactly right. So early introduction, this is kind of what they say in the tagline for the paper of allergenic foods, and this is what's in all the news articles too, in 63 infants is what was needed to prevent one allergy, development of an allergy in one kid. There were no issues in safety and no impact on breastfeeding rates or something like the you know, kid didn't want to breastfeed anymore at six months. Tired of that, yeah. So I think, you know, whether you're a doctor or a family member or a patient, a parent, a soon-to-be parent. This is really good information because I remember, you know, and I, I do run a lot of things by Mike. When our pediatrician told us that when we had Rhea, like, no, you start feeding her peanut butter and scrambled eggs like at three months old. We're like, what? That yeah. doesn't sound right. And I asked Mike and he's like, that's definitely not right. You know, <laughs> it was but, definitely not what we told us. And my son got a walnut allergy. Yeah. Boom. And so, but, you know, apparently that's the yeah. thing. That is a new thing. And I think it's very interesting. It's a great well, it's study the kind of in thing Lancet. You hate to be ignorant of too, if someone's asking you and they're like, "Yeah, but what about this?" and you're like, "No, that's crazy." And then they show you a, like, a, they're like, "But what does the Lancet yeah. says otherwise?" Yeah, this okay. one's Lancet. When Lancet speaks, we should listen. Editor's commentary. In this large forearm randomized trial from Scandinavia, the authors found that the introduction of peanuts, cow's milk, wheat, and eggs in small amounts starting at three months reduced the development of food allergy at 36 months. This represents a major change from the decades-long philosophy of allergen avoidance in infancy, and I feel that this knowledge has practical relevance in two of our most important roles, as medical providers and as parents. If you're going to do this, do it in a safe, non-choking hazard way, but I suggest introducing foods early, especially peanuts and eggs. Abstract number eight, paracapsular nerve group block for hip fracture is feasible, safe, and effective in the emergency department. A prospective observational comparative cohort study by Dr. Fahey et al. It's in Emergency Medicine Australasia, also known as the other EMA, and it wins the Rick Bucata Prize for this month for telling us everything you need to know in the title. Thank you very much. Except how to do the block and what it is. Fair enough. So, you know, reducing pain from hip fractures without inducing delirium in elderly patients has been a major point of emphasis for a lot of years. The fascia iliaca and femoral nerve blocks really do a nice job of relieving pain for this condition without needing high doses of morphine, such that even I have learned how to do these things under ultrasound guidance. Though truthfully, I don't necessarily think ultrasound guidance is necessary, at least not for the femoral nerve block. For the fascia iliaca, technically you probably need it so you can sort of tell, but you know, you kind of put the, the stuff in there and don't worry about it too much. Anyhow, these authors describe a new technique that I had never heard of aiming to achieve the same results with perhaps greater efficiency. The paracapsular nerve group block theoretically could be more effective than the other blocks because it potentially hits more sensory nerves than the other blocks, and that includes 
sensory branches of the femoral nerve very high up, but also some branch of the obturator nerve that's known not to be caught by the other blocks, which could impact the painful, you know, experience. And it's thought that it might have less effect on motor nerves, which would make potentially doing an exam a little bit better. Although frankly, I'm like, isn't it better if your leg is paralyzed? That way you don't try to move it around, but whatever. So there's a theoretic reason to do this thing. Practically, the approach to this block is more lateral than the typical femoral nerve blocks that we, we just talked about. It injects local anesthesia into this, what they call the iliopsoas plane that's very distant because it's so far lateral to the blood vessels. The technique they describe is performed under ultrasound guidance and they show some still images of it. I don't know if you can do it without ultrasound guidance. There's basically no data on the comparative effectiveness of the pericapsular nerve group block versus the femoral techniques. This is a small, prospective, single-site observational study looking at the effectiveness of the different techniques. Patients were enrolled prospectively, but received the nerve block at the discretion of the treating clinician. So in a totally unblinded, unrandomized, or non-randomized way. All blocks were performed under ultrasound guidance, and about 40 cc's of lignocaine was used as the anesthetic agent, which I don't use that, but it sounds like it has a fairly long duration of action, more like bupivacaine. The primary outcome was pain scores over time, according to the VAS, as recorded on a clinical research form that the authors asserted had to be used. I don't know how they made them do it, but they said that. Rescue opioids and adverse events were also recorded. There was no assessment of that motor function question. They identified 67 patients with hip fractures, of which 52 were enrolled, 19 had a fascia iliaca block, 14 had a femoral nerve block, and 19 had a paracapsular nerve group block, so about third, third, third. Basically, all the blocks worked similarly well, at least for the initial pain score reduction at 15 to 60 minutes. On average, pain scores dropped from about six to about two, and it was similar across the three treatment groups. There was slightly less rescue opioids used in the pericapsular nerve group block compared to the others at six hours and 12 hours, 22 MMEs versus 13 MMEs. But the results are not statistically significant. In their exploratory analysis, they found that 53% of that paracapsular group were totally pain-free at six hours compared with only about 33% in the two different femoral sort of techniques, a result that they don't say is statistically significant, but it's a pretty large difference between the two groups. And that's it. Basically, they like it, but they also correctly note that an RCT will be needed to confirm these observational findings because selection, lack of blinding, and user skill variation may have seriously biased the results. And even if the findings are found to be true, the marginal effect looks to be pretty small, so it may not be particularly useful. But, you know, it's always nice to have a few extra tools in the toolkit in case there's a particular reason that, you know, there's something wrong with the anatomy of the femoral nerve area, cellulitis, or some distortion or something. And so this, if it pans out, could be an, a useful thing. Not ready for prime time, but pretty cool nonetheless. Editor's Commentary this article describes the paracapsular nerve group block technique and the experience of 19 patients who received it compared to 33 patients who received the more traditional fascia iliaca or femoral nerve block. The results generally suggest this new nerve block technique is similarly useful 
and may have some opioid-sparing effects compared to the other blocks. The study was prospective, but small, single-center, observational, and unblinded, making the results exploratory and in need of more robust research techniques before accepting. Abstract number nine, periosteal block versus IV regional anesthesia for reduction of distal radius fractures, a randomized controlled trial by Beck et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. This is another one of those duos. Earlier we had the duo of IV fluids. This is the duo of orthopedic blocks. blocks. Yeah. This is a good paper. This is a good one. So reducing distal radius I, I, fractures. I find is, that, that makes it sound like the other one wasn't a good paper. You interpret it how you want. Reducing distal radius fractures definitely in the scope of practice of EM providers and making the procedure as pain-free as possible is paramount to maximizing success and patient satisfaction. Options for analgesia are a lot. There's a, you know, a hematoma block, right? And there's also just IV meds and stuff like that. There's the IV regional anesthesia, also known as the beer block. There are regional nerve blocks, and there's procedural sedation. Now, I covered a paper in June suggesting that the Beers block worked better than procedural sedation in kids for this indication. So I'm not going to go over the whole and how to do a Beers block again, but basically you kind of get a lot of the blood out of the arm, replace it with lidocaine, blow up a cuff, do your procedure, and then take the cuff down and monitor them. You can listen to the June episode if you really want full details. The authors of this paper are largely positive on the Beers block. They're like, no, it's good. But you know, you do have the cons of you need to monitor the patient for lidocaine toxicity, they could get lidocaine toxicity, and possibility of a prolonged ED stay. They are evaluating here a new technique called a periosteal block. Now, I remember when Mike and I scanned the papers quickly, we're like, yeah, hematoma block, blah, blah, This is something completely new, has nothing to do with the hematoma block. It was first described in 2015. By Dr. Periosteum. Yes, yeah, go on. I, I was just, I don't <laughs> know why, I don't know why he or she didn't name this thing after themselves, but they would have, it would have helped us with the, the paper The differentiation. I think it really would have. So in 2015, there was, and it was written up as a case report. So this doctor gets credit for being the first person Dr. to do Dr. it. Dr. Case report. Basically was treating a kid with a green stick fracture that needed to be pushed on a little bit. But since there was no hematoma, couldn't do a hematoma block technically. So for whatever reason, he or she injected lidocaine four centimeters proximal to the fracture all along the bone and then wrote it up as a case report of a painless reduction in this kit. The technique is as follows. You take 15 mLs of 1% lidocaine in an adult, six centimeters proximal to the wrist joint. You raise a little wheel on the lateral aspect, exactly on the dumb side, And then you basically put a larger needle in and you infiltrate the bone right in front of you where you can hit it, you kind of go on top of it, and you kind of go underneath it. So you go all around the bone and they sort of, there's pictures of it and you can watch videos too by pulling sort of traction and kind of moving under the skin. You really can use that one injection site to anesthetize pretty much all the surfaces of the radius, basically numbing the bone up proximal to the injury. That's what this is. When an ulnar styloid fracture is present, you just repeat the thing on the other side with 3 mLs of anesthetic. This is a prospective randomized trial from New Zealand on a convenient sample of adult ED patients with displaced distal radius fractures requiring closed reduction. They took all the docs who were working at you know, this place, 
and they gave him a 60-minute training session on each of them, on the Beers block as well as on this periosteal block. Of 40 patients in each arm, in an intent to treat anyway, three patients in the IV regional anesthesia group, the Beers block, crossed over, and one patient in the periosteal block crossed over. There was a lot of premedication use, which seems appropriate. One thing I really like about it is they say that 27 different clinicians participated in the trial. Yeah, but it was like there was one guy doing it and 26 people like encouraging her. <laughs> that's, I that's, think that's what it was. That's not what it is. No? So this wasn't a separate person who came in and did the block. It was the treating physician after these trainings were done. And that's cool. That sort of speaks to its generalizability. It doesn't sound very difficult to do this thing. It's not like no. you need an ultrasound and stuff, but it's nice that they gave it that. Sounds easier than a hematoma block because sometimes, agree. you know, you're fishing around there. It's hard to find that hematoma. I agree completely. As this is one of the first studies evaluating this block prospectively, the authors do a really nice job of providing what I would consider to be hypothesis generating results. Kind of more, feels more like a pilot study, although they don't call it that. All of which seem to favor the IV regional anesthesia group, actually. Uh Some highlights are pain reduction was less with the periosteal block, a drop of about 15 versus a drop of 25. The remanipulation rate was higher, about 17% versus about 7%, as was adjunct medication use during the procedure, 57% versus 22%, but no difference in length of stay, patient satisfaction, clinician-assessed ease of the technique, but there was a difference in clinicians' assessment of efficacy with the IV regional anesthesia or Beers block described as extremely effective by 65% of the docs and the periosteal block described as extremely effective by 25%. Uh Uh-oh. So this is a single-center study of a small, convenient sample of patients that was not blinded, and this could impact some of their subjective outcomes and adjunctive medication use, which was not protocolized here. And they had a failure of randomization as well. Mentioned before, but the initial pain score was higher in the periosteal block group by about 10 on the VAS scale. So generally speaking, I think the authors should be commended for organizing and conducting a trial using a diverse group of ED physicians. And they are very forthright about the limitations of their study and the interpretation of the findings in their discussion section and their conclusion. They do show that it's safe. And for me, The critical question is this, which is unanswered. Okay, this block seems easy. It seems safe. Maybe it's not as good as a Beers block, but I don't do a Beers block. How does it compare to a hematoma block? Right. How does it compare to things I do frequently? And my gut feeling is that's the next thing we're going to see. Because if this thing works better than a hematoma block, like Mike said, I feel like it might be easier. It sounds easier. No, I I agree with you. it's, It's really interesting. It's interesting how the you know, because it's essentially a negative study, but yeah, the control is just such an aggr- I mean, it's just a thing that I don't think very many people do. So. You know, if you remember, yeah. the other beer block paper was from Australia and New Zealand, similar, and so maybe they just do that a lot there. Yeah. Know, maybe for them, that is kind of a standard practice, but yeah. I'm waiting. Okay. Hematoma block. Editor's commentary. In this small, somewhat pilot-style randomized trial of a convenient sample of patients from an ED in New Zealand, the authors compare a Beers block to a novel periosteal block for adult patients with distal radius fractures requiring close reduction. The technique seems simple. It is basically just numbing the radius proximal to the injury with a single injection. Although they did not find it worked as well as a Beers block, 
the outcomes were highly subjective and the necessary non-blinded design may have introduced bias. It seems safe, and I think I'm going to try it. It didn't work great against this comparator, but it is totally unknown how it would perform against a more common comparator like a hematoma block. It's a new option, and I think it's worth knowing about. Quick take. Abstract number 10, and this is a quick take. It's prevalence and clinical significance of point-of-care elevated lactate at emergency admission in older patients, a prospective study. This is by Gosselin et al., and it's in Internal and Emergency Medicine. Study looks at the prevalence and prognostic value of serum lactate levels in all comer elderly patients coming to a single ED in Switzerland. The basic premises is that lactate is increasingly ordered as part of a screening lab panel, but no one knows what the prevalence of a high lactate is in all comers, and we do not have much understanding of its prognostic value outside of sepsis and or trauma. At this site, They had a research nurse prospectively draw a point-of-care lactate on all the patients over 65 years of age who presented to this ED in Lausanne during business hours for a one-year period in 2019 through 2020. They excluded patients who were undergoing evaluation for seizures because lactate is expected to be elevated and it doesn't have any prognostic value in that group. Each patient also had an outcome assessment. And they defined the outcome as either poor or not poor. And the poor outcome was that the patient required large amounts of fluid, vasoactive medications, intubation, death in the ED, or ICU admission. So like basically really poor outcome. This definition is not standard. It's totally unclear through their methods, like, you know, who really assessed that outcome and whether it was super reliable, but whatever. I'm going to give them a pass on it. They enrolled 600 patients. 7% of them had a poor clinical outcome, but a whopping 27% had elevated baseline lactate levels. And their statistical analysis, which include univariate analysis and multivariate logistic models, which may or may not be fully kosher given that it was a relatively small number of people who had the poor outcomes, the serum lactate level was not associated in any way with poor clinical outcomes. There are a lot of limitations to this study, but I think the key finding that more than one in four undifferentiated elderly patients who present to the ED has an elevated lactate is a bit shocking. That, coupled with the lack of evident correlation with poor outcomes, should probably dissuade providers from ordering screening lactates in this type of undifferentiated patient population, as the results are probably more likely to confound as opposed to illuminate. Editor's commentary. In this small single-site prospective study, the authors observed that serum lactate was elevated in 27% of all comer elderly patients in the ED. They failed to observe any relationship between elevated lactate levels and poor clinical outcomes in this diverse group. Though severely limited, this study should give providers pause when they are considering ordering lactate levels in undifferentiated patients. Quick take. Abstract number 11. DKA Fluid Management in Children, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Hamoud et al. from the Archives of Disease in Childhood. And this one is also a quick take. So professional organizations and probably your hospital recommend that fluid management in pediatric patients with DKA 
follow a conservative strategy when compared with how we give fluids to adults. The fear is that giving too much fluids too quickly can increase the risk of cerebral edema, although several randomized controlled trials and case-controlled studies have called the validity of this fear into question. The authors of this systematic review and meta-analysis have a goal of summarizing all currently published RCT data on the topic, which would be very useful because cerebral edema is rare, so if there's a bunch of good RCTs out there, let's put them together and see what we can learn. They identified three trials with a total of 1,457 episodes, 1,457, but unfortunately, about 1,400 of them, so almost all, came from the Cooperman study from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018. So it's really hard for me to think of this paper other than a summary and restatement of Nate's paper, because there's only like 60 more cases to add to it. As a reminder, that paper was conducted in a 2 by 2 factorial design, testing both type of fluid 0.45 NS versus 0.9% NS and rate of fluid resuscitation, fast and slow. But the fast wasn't all that fast, right? 10 cc. Yeah, the slow wasn't all that slow. And they found no difference between groups in percent of patients whose GCS dropped below 14, magnitude of drop of GCS, time GCS was less than 14, clinically apparent brain injury, or long-term cognitive tests like IQ and memory scores. So basically, I think this paper just restates the same finding that the rate and type of fluid given do not impact bad neurologic outcomes and cerebral edema as long as your definitions of fast and slow rates are within currently accepted and very conservative values. Editor's commentary. Although this paper is technically a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at fluid management in pediatric patients with DKA, almost all of the included patients came from the Cooperman New England Journal of Medicine study published in 2018. At this time, The best evidence that we have says that using slow versus fast fluid resuscitation does not impact neurologic outcomes in DKA as long as the fast option is still within the conservative limits set forth by most hospitals and professional organizations. We don't have any studies about giving large amounts of fluids quickly like we do in adults, and I don't think we ever will. So for me, the best strategy at this time is if your local guidelines offer a range of rehydration options, I would choose the fastest. Abstract number 12, clinical outcomes following implementation of a formalized flashes and floaters emergency department triage protocol by Shen et al. And this is in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. And this is, I believe, the first time we've ever covered an American Journal of Ophthalmology. And it is going to win the Shen Prize, which is for having sort of the most misleading title of all of the papers of the month. It's not bad, it's just misleading. Is it about flashers and floaters? (laughs) It is indeed. Okay. So again, I love this paper, even though the methods aren't strong and the statement in the title is not actually what it finds. I'm I'm interested, sort of. First things first, okay. Did you know that the technical term for flashes and floaters is photopsias? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So see, we've already learned something. Pretty good. Photopsy. They're like, yeah. And for the record, these are ophthalmologists, right? And they start the paper by going, flashes and floaters 
also known as photopsia. So I don't even know that like this can is I, ubiquitously say, true. I'm going to say this. I learned the word. I appreciate it. There's a lot of ophthalmologic words I don't know. Their jargon is very hard to understand. Mostly those are abbreviations, stuff, abbreviations, things like that. I don't like this word. Photopsia sounds yes. like a sounds like a joke. Sounds like a like a floppy-footed clown. Hey, I'm Photopsia, the floppy-footed clown. See, I saw like a flotation device play, like a giant emporium of flotation devices. It's Flotopsia! Ray, I guess he's coming to your birthday party. Flotopsia! He, he was free this weekend. Yeah, it's the other. We're going to Flotopsia for your birthday. No? No? <laughs> for the record, it's Photopsia, not Flotopsia. <laughs> yeah, maybe the flashes and floaters are the clown is Flotopsia. So maybe we haven't learned. We have learned something through this. I've learned something I wish I could unlearn. (laughs) Sanchez an idiot. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's forever burned on my retinas now, and I have a flotopsia because of it. Oh, man. There's there's a point to this paper that's not bad. (laughs) The differential for flashes and floaters, because we just got to turn the page on photopsias, includes Posterior vitreous detachment, retinal detachment, retinal tears. And this creates management problems for emergency clinicians because, you know, obviously a MAC on retinal detachment is probably like a real emergency, unlike a flotopsia, which is like a fun game to play at a carnival. Anyway, but those MAC on retinal detachments are pretty rare. Posterior vitreous detachments, of course, that present with flashes and floaters are not emergent at all, but getting an emergent ophthalmologic evaluation in the ED can be a real challenge, particularly in non-teaching community practice. So the tact that a lot of people out there take is to say, look, if your vision's preserved, it's not a true emergency and you can go see your ophthalmologist tomorrow. That strategy is devoid of evidence. These authors developed a pathway or guideline for the management of patients who present with flashes and floaters at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. The protocol is actually quite simple. Patients who are eligible for deferred optho evaluation defined as an exam within 48 hours, but not in the ED. And they were eligible if they had flashes of floaters, preserved visual acuity, and that means that their visual acuity in the affected eye was no worse than two Snellen lines than the unaffected eye, no visual field cuts, okay, and no recent surgery or trauma within 30 days to their eye, and finally, no personal history of retinal detachment. So those are pretty easy criteria. It doesn't require a lot of sophisticated evaluation. All the other patients, so if you didn't meet those criteria, required immediate ophthalmologic evaluation. The study is an examination of the proportion of people who were eligible for this deferred pathway and whether any emergent diagnoses were or would have been missed by using the deferred approach. It's a retrospective chart review of patients presenting to the single ED from 2014 to 2018 when the protocol was rolled out. Cases were identified using a program that looked through the medical record and looked for words, flashes, and floaters. And interesting, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think it looked for the word photopsia. Yeah, no <laughs> program, sure. no program smart enough to do what you're describing is going to use a word so ridiculous. It's going to be like, that's not a real word. I'm going to look for that when I look for gobble the boobs. That's you know, the, the irritating part about this is that I had to, you know, as going through my notes, I wrote down the word photopsia several times. 
and I added it to my dictionary on my word. And the dictionary it was, was like, like sent an alert to the to dictionary Microsoft. was like reject. <laughs> anyway, they did that, and then they retrospectively determined whether the patient was eligible for this deferred pathway or not. The methods are definitely spotty, most significantly because the chart abstractors were not blind to the purpose of the study, and they did not have explicit methodology for handling missing data. Finally and this is a bit of a a limitation, but they use the ophthalmology resident finding as the diagnostic gold standard, which, you know, may or may not be 100% accurate, but better than me, that's for sure. They found 470 ED encounters for flashes and floaters over five years, which is actually pretty light, you know, compared to what I see. It's only 100 100 cases a year, but whatever. Over two-thirds of them met criteria for deferred ophthalmologic evaluation. Of those, so the, you know, the large majority met criteria for deferred ophthalmological evaluation. Of those, 73% had an isolated posterior vitreous detachment, 5% had a migraine, and 10% had a retinal break. There were no retinal detachments. No protocol-eligible patients had any retinal detachment, MAC-ON or MAC-OFF, or other diagnosis, quote, requiring emergent diagnostic or therapeutic care. On the other hand, patients that, according to the protocol, did require emergent ophthalmologic evaluation, in that group, 25% had retinal breaks, 19% had MAC involving retinal detachments, and 13% had MAC sparing retinal detachments, and there were a smidge of people with retinal artery occlusions, and one had a stroke. There are a few things to note. First, this retinal break thing is confusing, okay? These patients do require some form of photocoagulation. It's just that it can be deferred up to a couple of days. So this protocol does not suggest that this strategy reveals that, oh, you don't have anything you need to worry about, just that you don't need to have it done like within this, you know, two hours of an easy You don't need visit. to call somebody in the middle of the right. night. But, you know, th- this is still could be a little bit of a problem. Secondly, they did not adhere strongly to this protocol at the Mayo Clinic. There were tons of people who were eligible for the deferred thing but they still got an emergent ophthalmologic evaluation such that the large majority of people had their evaluation within 12 hours, even the deferred group. So if there was going to be some ability for a retinal tear to turn into a retinal detachment, they kind of obviated it. Yeah, we wouldn't know it. Exactly. Because they all got seen. They all got seen really Sooner than they were supposed to. Exactly. So third, it's unclear if this structured approach is more efficient than an unstructured approach in which the ED doc just decides, does this seem like a retinal detachment or not? You know, I've got these criteria, but I weigh that against all the other variables that I've encountered while interviewing the patient. And finally, there's no discussion of how an ED ocular ultrasound might influence these findings. So, you know, it's not so much as a criticism as it is just something that, you know, a lot of people are starting to incorporate in their practice and how that might influence things and further, you know, categorize people in a safe manner. Even with all these limitations, I think it's a really interesting study. I've never seen anything quite like it. And, you know, while I do not think the results should influence any kind of immediate practice change, I think a lot of us are already implicitly doing this kind of triage for patients with flashes and floaters. And this gives us slightly more solid evidence base for such a practice. I also learned the new word, photopsia. Editor's commentary. Visual flashes and or floaters are commonly caused by posterior vitreous detachment, retinal tears, or retinal detachment. 
This fairly limited single-site retrospective study looked at which patients with these were low risk for acute retinal detachment. They report that no patient with preserved visual acuity, no visual field cuts, no history of trauma or recent surgery, and no personal history of retinal detachment was diagnosed with retinal detachment and therefore could have their ophthalmologic evaluation deferred for up to 48 hours. Quick take. Abstract number 13. Evaluation of first dose IV push penicillins and carbapenems in the ED. This is by Academia et al. What a cool last name for an author. From the Journal of Pharmacy Practice. Not a lot of, it's the old Jeeves thing. Not a lot of options if your name is, if your last name's Academia. You're going into Academia. You're not good. You know what you're not doing? Professional sports. That's right. (laughs) So this one's a quick take. When treating patients with infections, the time to giving first dose of antibiotics is important because it affects mortality. And also because you don't want your admins getting mad at you because it's part of the core measures. Most antibiotics are given via IV infusion, but giving things via an infusion definitely increases the time because, you know, you have to set it up, you have to run it over a certain number of minutes, and adds cost. This is now the second study we have covered here on EMA reporting on the local experience during a time of shortage of saline bags when they had to convert their antibiotics in the ED to push dose. It's a retrospective pre-post comparison from a single center comparing their primary outcome was time. The time to first dose ampicillin, sulbactam, piptazo, and ertapemnum in an ED when they used the push compared to the traditional IV piggyback. Looking at time-related outcomes, the paper is actually very clear and the methods are pretty good. They found that the median time from ED arrival to initiation of antibiotic administration was 140 minutes versus 110 minutes in the IV push group, which was statistically significant difference. The IV push administration increased the proportion of indexed antibiotics administered within the first 60 minutes of arrival as well. So it was 20% of the patients got their first dose within 60 minutes when it was given push form versus 12%. And that was a statistically significant difference too. Neither of these seems incredibly surprising to me. The unknown with IV push has to do with the safety of it, right? Is this like it's faster to push something than it's to run it over 20 minutes? Let me make a notation. Yeah, really. But is it safe? Unfortunately, this section of the methods is severely lacking. They basically just say the charts were reviewed for adverse events, but don't comment on any specific details of the review, if the reviewers were blinded to what they were looking for, how they dealt with missing data or, you know, different data of two people saw different things. All or the things that are incorporated into All methodology. All the things that are incredibly <laughs> important, right? And they didn't, doesn't look like they use multiple reviewers either. And if they did, certainly no mention of how they ensured consistency between their reviewers. But their report no difference in adverse drug reactions between the IV push and IV piggyback groups at 1.7% versus 2.6%. And basically all of them were sort of mild urticaria and redness. But it's impossible to take these numbers at face value without fully understanding their data collection, the adjudication process for potential adverse events, 
and the information on the number of patients with missing data. Even that's not there. So although not perfect, there are more objective scales that can be used to assess adverse drug reactions to minimize bias, and none of those were used here. So I think it sort of tells us something a bit obvious, and on the thing we really care about, it totally, unfortunately, falls flat. Editor's commentary. In this single-site retrospective study, the authors compare their use of IV push antibiotics during the normal saline bag shortage with traditional IV piggyback infusion and conclude that the practice is both faster and safe. The first part of this I agree with, and frankly don't find it surprising that setting up a pump and mixing up medications takes time. However, I feel their claims of safety are grossly overstated due to essentially no description of the chart review methods, likely non-blinded assessors, and no comment on missing or conflicting data. In my heart, I feel like IV push for antibiotics is safe, but we can't rely on the data here to prove it. Abstract number 14, defining antibiotic inertia, application of a focused clinical scenario survey to illuminate a new target for antimicrobial stewardship during transitions of care. This is by CUDA et al. in Clinical Infectious Diseases, the official publication of the Infectious Disease Society of America. This is a, you know, it's basically a brief report reminding us that what we do really matters. In this case, because the consultants and others who are taking care of your patients after they leave the ED are very likely to continue what you started, even if it was wrong in the first place. The authors are looking at how ED antibiotic choice influences subsequent providers. The study itself is a vignette-based survey of emergency providers, intensivists, and internists at a single institution. In phase one of the study, the ED providers were given eight scenarios involving patients with pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infection, UTI, or undifferentiated sepsis, and asked which antibiotic they would prescribe. And they were given like a whole list. It was like 30-something antibiotics. The authors then determined if the antibiotic was broad or narrow spectrum, right? That was just, they had a classification, you know, penicillin, narrow, you know, whatever, zosin, broad. And if the choice was appropriate or inappropriate, and they used their existing hospital guideline to determine appropriateness. And this is the hospital that all these people worked at. They then surveyed the internists and the intensivists with the same scenarios, except that they varied whether the ED doc had prescribed a narrow or broad-spectrum antibiotic and asked what antibiotic these providers would continue the patient on or put the patient on. Ultimately, it's a tiny study. They had 40 responses, which is about a 30% response rate. The ED docs often chose an inappropriate antibiotic according to the author's definition. And it was interesting because it aired in both directions. They chose a broad-spectrum antibiotic when a narrow-spectrum antibiotic was appropriate 40% of the time, and they chose a narrow-spectrum antibiotic when a broad-spectrum antibiotic was indicated 36% of the time. So they got it right about two-thirds of the time and wrong in both directions. When the inpatient doctors were surveyed, the initial choice by the ED provider had a big effect. The inpatient docs had a roughly two times higher odds of selecting an inappropriate antibiotic if the ED doc had previously selected an inappropriate antibiotic, whether it was too broad or too narrow, whatever. I want to get too much in the weeds here because ultimately this study is really small. It's single site, has poor response, and it doesn't 
involve the actual choice of antibiotics. So the findings are pretty limited. There's no way to actually use this to estimate how big the problem really is because they intentionally selected scenarios which may artificially make the inappropriate choice more likely than it would be in clinical practice. But I think the general point is probably correct. What you do matters, and it has a more lasting impact than just in the ED portion of the patient's say. So take a moment to review your local hospital prescribing guidelines so that you can improve the chance that your patients get the right antibiotic because the hospitalists are not very likely to change it for you. Editor's commentary. The authors look at the influence of initial antibiotic choice on subsequent provider antibiotic choices in this vignette-based study. They found that ED providers often choose inappropriate antibiotics, erring with both too broadly when narrow-spectrum antibiotics may be indicated and too narrowly when broad-spectrum antibiotics may be indicated. Worse, inpatient clinicians are likely to continue these antibiotic prescriptions rather than switch them to the right choice. ED providers should be aware of this tendency or antibiotic inertia and take the time to thoughtfully consider the antibiotic choice up front. Abstract number 15. High prevalence of fluoroquinolone-resistant UTIs among U.S. emergency department patients diagnosed with urinary tract infection 2018 to 2020. This is by Fain et al. from Academic Emergency Medicine. So, fun fact, the treatment of UTIs accounts for about 15% of all outpatient antibiotic use in the United States. That's a fun fact, but knowing that photopsia is the scientific word for flashes and floaters isn't fun? Can't even say it right. It's, it's dead. Just let it go. Okay, you made up the word. Nobody believes you. We knew it was bogus to begin with. This paper is about real medical stuff. So as antimicrobial resistance can change rapidly, surveillance and reporting of the prevalence of E. coli-resistant and ESBL-producing uropathogens is necessary to guide empiric antimicrobial treatment. The purpose of this study was to determine the rates of fluoroquinolone resistance among ED patients with UTI from a geographically diverse set of sites in the U.S. This is a multi-center retrospective observational cohort study from 15 EDs that are part of the Emergency Medicine Pharmacotherapy Research Network Consortium. They identified patients via ICD-10 codes and included adults with a primary or secondary diagnosis of UTI who also had a urine culture, and they excluded patients who were pregnant, those with suspected or confirmed acute bacterial prostatitis, orchitis, epididymitis, among a few others. The chart review methods are really excellent. With a full description of the reviewer training process, the audit process, to ensure that abstractor entries were accurate and complete, as well as providing very concrete operational definitions for cystitis and pyelonephritis. A positive urine culture was defined as a specimen with greater than or equal to 104 colony forming units per ml of bacteria isolated in the urine culture with less than or equal to two organisms, because they said if there are more than two, probably it's a contaminant. Of 3,700 patients identified between January 2018 and December 2020, 2,242 or 60% had a urine culture that was either clearly positive or clearly negative by their definitions. The median age was about 63 years, 76% female, 
and almost 82% had some form of cystitis. Across all sites, the overall E. coli fluoroquinolone resistance prevalence was 22.1%, so pretty high, one out of five. The range was between about 10% to 30% by site, but in truth, pretty much all the sites except for one were above 20%. The prevalence of ESBL-producing uropathogens was 7.4%, ranging from 3.6% to 11.6% by site. Previous IV or oral antimicrobial use in the last 90 days and history of multidrug-resistant pathogens were associated with fluoroquinolone-resistant E. coli at an odds ratio of 2.68 and 6.93, respectively. Of the patients who had fluoroquinolone-resistant E. coli or an ESBL-producing uropathogen isolated, 37% and 36% did not have any documented factors for resistance. So, This is a really well-done study with some minor limitations, with the main one being in relation to risk factor identification, right? It's possible these were simply not documented in the EMR, or the person got antibiotics at some other hospital that was outside of their EMR or something like that. But this is just sort of meant to give you some facts, meant to know that surveillance is occurring, and the rate of resistance, even in patients with no previously identified risk factors, is definitely on the rise. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective observational study from 15 emergency departments across the U.S. with outstanding methods, the authors report that fluoroquinolone-resistant E. coli rates were above 20% at all sites except for one, and ESBL-mediated resistance is definitely on the rise. They further suggest that the absence of traditional risk factors may not be good enough to rule out resistance but there are some limitations around understanding the magnitude of this finding. Surveillance programs are important. We need to know and reference our local antibiotograms and prescribing guidelines, and it seems like the days of knee-jerk prescribing fluoroquinolones for outpatient cystitis and pyelonephritis are coming to an end. Quick take. Abstract number 16, this is a quick take. It's radiographic imaging does not add value for female pediatric patients with isolated blunt straddle mechanisms. This is by McLaughlin et al. and it's the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. You do not see a lot of practice-changing research evaluating the management of female pediatric straddle injuries. And after this paper, you still will have not seen a lot of practice-changing information. Basically, the idea is that girls slip and fall around pools or crash their bicycles or land awkwardly on a trampoline, and they can sustain a straddle injury to the perineum. There are massive challenges examining the child and repairing the injuries, mostly related to getting the child relaxed enough to conduct a thorough exam, and then, of course, even more relaxed if you need to get in there with stitches and everything else. This paper is really a description of these injuries and the evaluation strategy used at Penn State over a 14-year period. They identified 83 girls who met entry criteria in that they had ICD-9 or 10 codes for perineal trauma and were not sexual assault victims, nor had they suffered any other form of penetrating injury, as assessed by chart review. There are no methods in this paper. Like, it's it's not there. 42% of these girls had labial injury, 30% had perineal injury, 15% had vaginal injury, and one girl had urethral injury. 
the large majority did not have any radiographic studies performed. 87% of them, nothing was done. 11 total studies were performed. There were like six pelvic x-rays performed and five CT scans, none of which showed any significant pathology. And on the basis of this, the authors conclude that radiographic studies do not add value to these cases. I tend to agree with that conclusion, but I think it's pretty seriously overstated given the really small number of studies that were ordered. And it kind of implies that we're ordering a lot of studies already when 87% of them didn't get a study in the first place. And, you know, yeah, I mean, it seems like they're kind of going, nobody does this. Here's the proof of it, and you shouldn't do it. But yeah. that's good because nobody's doing it. Right, exactly. So, there you go. You know, and if, if one in 10 cases, you're like, wow, that was a really big fall, and maybe you're worried they have a broken pelvis or something like that, okay, you know, one in 10, that's fine. You know, who cares? That's, that's totally fine. Shouldn't do it on everybody, but you weren't in the first place. More interesting is the is that the majority of these kids, about 60%, were taken to the OR for an exam under anesthesia, and almost all of those had a lack repair. Of the children who were not taken to the OR, no injuries were apparently missed on follow-up, but those methods were not good. The authors note that during the study period, ED-based procedural sedation was not an option at their institution, so it's totally not known how availability of that might have affected the need for an evaluation under anesthesia. And I think that's a really important question for us in the ED. Like, I personally have no desire to manage sedation for kids with this type of injury. This is a delicate situation. And, you know, if they need it, I'd much rather they go to the OR. But I also don't want to make these kids necessarily get admitted to the hospital and undergo a procedure with general anesthesia if a quick procedural sedation could have got the evaluation done and, you know, a single stitch placed. So I think that's a big question. It's unfortunately just not answered at all. I would say this, and this has nothing to do with the paper, but if this happens and there's a, a injury and we decide that it's best, that it's you know, maybe not super high risk or whatever, and maybe there's a little laceration that needs to be repaired, I am not going to repair that laceration. I will do the procedural sedation, but the gynecologists and or pediatric surgeons are going to be the one managing that, akin to the way I would do like a complex uh, sort of orthopedic procedure. You know, The ortho guys are going to do the procedure. I'm going to do the sedation, and that's how I'm going to leave it with this paper. Editor's commentary. This is a small retrospective analysis of pediatric blunt perineal injuries not caused by sexual assault. The authors conclude that radiographic imaging should be avoided, which is likely fair, but not entirely supported by the research methods. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Remote Investigation and Assessment of Vital Signs, RIA VS, Proof of Concept for Contactless Estimation of Blood Pressure, Pulse, Respiratory Rate, and Oxygen Saturation in Patients with Suspicion of COVID-19. This is by Malmberg et al. from Infectious Diseases. So vital signs are one of the first data points used at ED triage to assess severity of presentation and illness severity. Current methods of obtaining a full set of vitals requires using several different devices. Usually, really? yeah, it's time-consuming and it necessitates prolonged contact with each patient. So this last issue became especially salient during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially early in the pandemic, when the goal of most healthcare providers was to spend as little amount of time in that room as humanly possible. In the introduction, the authors state that there are actually several devices that have evaluated contactless estimations of temperature, 
respiratory rate, pulse, and oxygen saturation, but the results are varied, and some of the devices require sort of putting your finger on the camera itself or within sort of a thing that comes out of the camera so it can shine some infrared light on there and stuff. So they're not really contactless because you're like right next to them holding the, the phone or whatever it is. There have been no previous publications assessing contactless blood pressure measurements, although there are several apps out there in the App Store that claim to have the ability to do this. This study aimed to investigate the concept of a high-speed camera linked to an AI system to measure blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, O2 saturation, contactless, by briefly observing a patient's face from a distance of about one meter. So they conducted this. This part is pretty cool. During the COVID-19 pandemic, like in the meat of it, between June and October 2020, on patients with COVID symptoms. So the device is called the Remote Investigation and Assessment of Vital Signs, the RIA VS, which consists of a tripod with a high-speed camera, one red LED light, one infrared LED light, and then it records the patient's face for 30 seconds, sort of shining different lights for like 10-second intervals. So it's like infrared light for a little bit that measures something and a regular light that measures something. And it gives a lot of technical detail. This kind of written like a technical manuscript. It's super cool about how it's like it looks at the change and flush of redness on the cheeks to estimate some stuff. It's very interesting. If you're interested in this stuff, you probably can take a read. They enrolled 214 patients, mean age of 44 years, 61% female. And like I said, not only are the methods technical, but the results are very technical. But I'm just going to sum it up by saying the camera's estimation of vital signs was actually very close to the gold standard measurement of vital signs on average. But the amount of variation and random variation was very, very large. Now, a lot of the paper, it's kind of, it's written in a very interesting style. It just seems like the authors are kind of like thinking out loud almost. It's just like their thoughts on it and why some things worked and some didn't work and about the ways their algorithm and device could be improved with more training of the AI. They're like, maybe we should have done longer video clips. Maybe we should have had more strict instructions on patients on what to do like smile, don't smile, have a neutral face. It's like a lot of like coulda, woulda, shouldas in there. It's kind of a funky read. And my favorite quote from it, and I read the whole thing because I found it somewhat interesting. You're going to love this, right? It talks about the AI section, all right? Ah, I'm super curious yeah. about it. This is a direct quote from the paper. No one knows exactly what an AI does when it solves a designated task. Yeah, well, that's, what that's why when they're saying like, I was thinking that and they're like, Maybe we should have left it longer. Yeah, maybe. Who knows what the AI would have done but with that? But it's just so great. The super technical is like, how's the AI work? Nobody knows. <laughs> you put ask, it in. ask the AI. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't know. It doesn't even know. It's just kind of a funny quote right <laughs> yeah, out of the paper. So I, love it. I think it would have been nice in my mind to see more things that are traditionally presented in feasibility data. This feels like a feasibility study to me. Like how many of the recordings were adequate? How many you know, how many people like said they would do, you know, like, yeah, like that kind of a thing. What were the patient's perceptions of it? What were, yeah. Could the patient, they're sick with COVID, could they even sit still for 30 seconds? You know, what but the AI, that's the thing though, Sanjay, is that the AI takes that into account. 
It's like, oh, I passed out. Okay, blood pressure probably like 60. That could be true. Eyes were closed. Eyes were open. Grimacing and pain. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nobody knows knows. what they do. And there was no testing on other skin types either. Like how, because, you know, you have to see the flush and color and stuff like that. So, yes, the authors are part owners of this Rhea VS device. So their optimistic discussion does feel a bit biased in best case scenario. But I generally think it's cool that people are designing and testing devices like this. And it's interesting to read that we're getting close. Editor's commentary. In this single-site study conducted during the COVID-19 pandemic on patients with COVID symptoms, the authors evaluate the potential value of a high-speed camera system linked to an AI to measure blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation in a contactless fashion And although the authors, who also own the device, found the average values to be pretty close to reference ranges, the observed amount of random variation was too large to recommend its use. It's great that scientists and businesses are working on devices with a goal of keeping providers safer. And it's fascinating to me to read that we are actually getting close to the point where we can measure a blood pressure without actually touching the patient. Abstract number 18. Workplace Violence in the Emergency Department, Case Study on Staff and Law Enforcement Disagreement on Reportable Crimes. This is by McGuire et al., and it's in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. So I'm covering this paper because I have noted a big surge in studies and research looking at ED workplace safety over the past few months. None of the papers have been extremely large or extremely comprehensive, and that's why they didn't get in. And this one really isn't large or comprehensive either, but I did want to cover it to just let you all know out there that this is a focus of research that we're seeing some activity in after many years of not seeing activity in it. And I do think that this particular paper has some interesting points. In the introduction of the study, the authors note that violence in the ED is very common and really, quote, part of the job. Prior work shows that reportable criminal incidents that occur in the emergency department are severely underreported, like probably less than 30% of them. And the reasons for this underreporting are not well understood, but likely include that it takes a lot of time to do it. It's kind of a big headache. But also, there's probably a lot of uncertainty about what truly is a reportable crime versus you know, some other form of workplace violence or something like that, right? There's crimes and then there's stuff that just happens from, you know, getting needle sticks and other other kind of stuff that, you know, may be truly part of the job or requires other interventions. Yeah. And I tend to think that like maybe a large part of it is situational too. It's like if you were to take, you know, these people out of the ED, right? And like this happened to them while they were at Starbucks or something like that. They would clearly view it as, you know, crime or, you know, certainly worth reporting or something. Whereas in the ED, I think there's this, we're just kind of used to it. There's one thing maybe. The part of the job. Yeah. And and a second part of it, though, is like, well, they're sick. You know, they're sick. They might not know what what they're doing. And that's what we're going to get into. That's exactly what they did. So the purpose of this study was to assess the extent to which emergency clinicians and law enforcement officials agree whether or not certain patient behaviors were criminal, with the principle being that we're not going to report them if we don't even think they're criminal, if they're just, like you said, you know, just whatever, you know, just part of like how sick people behave. 
This is another scenario-based study. The authors have four scenarios, and respondents representing the emergency department community in law enforcement rated whether each scenario was a reportable crime or not. 260 ED staff filled out the survey out of 960 that were approached, so a pretty small response rate, less than 30%, and about half of the law enforcement officials who were approached filled out the survey. The scenarios represented pretty typical ED stuff. The first one was an 85-year-old man with dementia who becomes agitated, documented dementia, only oriented to times one, documented dementia, punches a nurse in the ED. The second is a 25-year-old drunk guy who spits bloody sputum in the face of a phlebotomist. The third one is a 70-year-old lady with abdominal pain who becomes delirious in the ED and then threatens to hunt down her treating physician when she's discharged. Like, when I get out of here, I'm going to hunt you down, but she's delirious. The fourth one is a mother of a one-year-old who has a tantrum of her own when she's told she's not going to be prescribed antibiotics for her kid's URI and throws a chair across the room that narrowly misses a medical student, so it doesn't hit anyone. So those are the, the scenarios. This, this sounds like what I call the Thursday night special, the Friday yeah, night special, exactly. Saturday, and the Sunday night special. I'll let you decide which one's which. <laughs> very well played, friend. So what'd they find? There was strong agreement within and between law enforcement and ED staff that scenario two was a reportable offense. The dude who spits blood into the face of the, you know, the drunk guy who spits blood into the face of the phlebotomist. 95% and 97% of respondents agreed that that was reportable. Everything else was a mess. For scenario one, there was general disagreement among law enforcement and among ED staff, but not between ED staff and law enforcement. That is, 26% of law enforcement thought that was a reportable crime, and 30% of the ED staff thought that that was reportable. So we disagreed with ourselves, you know, but not across law enforcement and ED staff. So it's, so it's just confusing. That one's kind of just more confusing. For scenarios three and four, it was even worse because we disagreed with ourselves and with each other, right? And that one, like, the ED staff was generally more likely to think these were criminal offenses, 42 and 81% respectively, compared to law enforcement that saw it as criminal offenses only 20 and 66% of the time. There are a lot of problems with the study, including that the response rate, as I said, was very low. So that might not represent the, the real ED perspective or the real law enforcement perspective, but the sort of biased view of respondents. The other bit of it is that the law enforcement officials were pulled from the community of the police department and not hospital-specific law enforcement, which I think maybe would have a better understanding of like what's criminal in that environment, because obviously there's some discretion there. Still, I think the study highlights a major problem. If law enforcement does not consistently label certain behaviors as criminals, what chance do we have, right? And if we don't know, how are we going to report it? You know, we're likely going to err in not reporting criminal activities. Now, in the main, I'm not a big fan of calling cops on our patients. You know, I don't think that's the vibe you want in your healthcare setting, to be honest. But that said, absent clear guidance, we're likely to be very capricious or maybe worse in our reporting strategies, which could result in some ugly disparities that I'd like to avoid. So, you know, obviously some serious work needs to be done to come into some form of understanding with our local safety officers and ED staff and maybe our, our ED on-site leadership about what constitutes something that should be reported or not 
we just have no idea. And this highlights just how difficult the situation, how far we have to go. Editor's commentary. ED workplace violence is receiving renewed attention in the medical literature. The central theme appears to be that the environment is prone to violence and underreporting of criminal violent incidents is commonplace. This vignette-based study of ED staff and law enforcement officials demonstrates significant within and between group variation in categorizing violent behaviors as criminally reportable or not. More work should be done to help define what is reportable criminal behavior in the emergency department. Quick take. Abstract number 19. Use of a real-time locating system to assess internal medicine, resident location, and movement in the hospital. This is by Rosen et al. from JAMA Network Open. So it has a very interesting introduction section where the authors kind of very carefully lay out their argument that there is a documented decline in time spent directly with patients, even during things like clinical rounds, where they're sort of saying back in the 90s, clinical rounds used to take place right at the bedside, doing exams on the patients and stuff like that. And the movement now is to do them more in the hallways and in conference rooms with workstations and stuff like that. They're saying that then this, they feel, contributes directly to what we are seeing as a diminishing of physical exam skills and then indirectly increasing medical error. And also they feel this may worsen burnout because burnout is another problem we're sort of seeing in the medical specialties now by sort of diluting down the real purpose of being a doctor, which they sort of imply is that patient-doctor relationship and interaction. Most previous estimations of time spent in rooms and talking to patients have been conducted via observers, right? They like put somebody in the room in the corner and they kind of watch stuff and watch people go in and out. And here they try to provide a more accurate estimate of what they're calling a problem using a real-time locating system. So this is a cross-sectional study using this real-time locating system on medicine interns at Johns Hopkins Hospital. 44 out of 52 interns agreed to participate and were given a locating badge in addition to their hospital badge that they could just kind of put right behind it. You got a tracker. You got a tracker on. In terms of time spent in the hospital, okay, 13% was spent in patient rooms, 24% was spent in hallways on the wards, and about a third of the time was spent in physician workrooms. There was quite a bit of variation between individuals, between the interns, with some of them spending as little as 8% of their time in the patient's room and some spending closer to 20%. There was also variance depending on the service that they were on at the time, right? Because medicine interns rotate through different services with oncology having the most in-room time, but still wasn't that much. It was like 16%. When they looked at location only during times of day when clinical rounds was occurring, they sort of said it's like at our hospital between 8 a.m. and 11 a.m., that's when the attendings are there. We walk the wards. We do the rounds. This is when these numbers, this is when the numbers should skyrocket, right? The time spent in the rooms was not that much better. It ranged between 8% to about 27%, depending on the service that they were on. There's lots of limitations here, including missing data for lots of areas in the hospital, no information on what the interns were doing in the different locations, right? Because even the one who spent 
20% of their time in the room, maybe they were just on a computer, like oh. typing the whole no, time. They just not found an empty room, nap time. <laughs> yeah, dude. I guess that's true. They definitely didn't say if there was a patient in the room. That's yeah. a very good point I didn't think about. The sample only includes medical interns from one hospital and doesn't really take into account that the fact that the attendings probably set the culture, right? I don't think the interns are no. like scurrying to get out of the room. It's more like the attendings, like they used to be at the bedside putting hands on patients and stuff like that. So that's something they don't discuss at all, actually, in this paper is sort of, you know, pointing the blame upwards a little bit. But it seems to me like they probably set the culture of the place and picked the location for doing their discussion, clinical discussions and rounds. So this is not a perfect study, but it is a good use of technology to document the magnitude of what they're sort of calling this epidemic of spending less time actually with patients while in training to a point where at the best estimates, they're saying right now the time from when Mike and I trained to sort of the current trainees, the time you spend in a patient's room has gone down by about half of what it was before. So you know, if we can all agree that time spent at the patient's bedside has value, this probably is a call to, and they're not really talking about community hospitals and things, they're talking to academic centers here going, hey, we got to get some interventions going to make sure we're spending more time with the patient. Editor's commentary. In this single center study of medicine interns using a real-time locating system, the authors report that only about 13% of their day is spent in a patient's room as opposed to in a hallway or workroom. This amount varied a little based on the type of service they were on and when limiting the data to times of day that bedside clinical rounds should be occurring. I agree that time in a patient's room is valuable for lots of reasons, including teaching and rapport building, and those of us who work with residents should be mindful of this and think of ways to bring critical aspects of training back to the bedside. Abstract number 20, the 2013 to 2019 emergency medicine workforce, clinician entry and attrition across the U.S. geography by Gettle et al. And this is also in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this is a great paper. Kudos to the authors for taking on this project. Uh, by way of background, a really startling report came out right at the beginning of the pandemic when Marco et al. published the Emergency Medicine Physician Workforce Projections for 2030. That analysis, which many of you probably is still probably pretty fresh in your brain. Never heard of it. Yeah. That suggested that by 2030, which when you look at your watch, it's not that far from now, there would be a surplus of over 7,000 emergency physicians or roughly 20% excess, right? We have roughly 30,000, 35,000. So 7,000 is a lot, a huge amount that we'd have this, this huge excess in America by 2030. This understandably set everyone into a tizzy. We were producing way too many emergency physicians, and that didn't even take into account the massive pandemic-related decline in ED visits that were occurring right when the paper was published. And many people thought would be somewhat permanent, right? We thought maybe it wouldn't rebound all the way up. There was a lot of reason to, to hypothesize that. Spoiler alert, that hypothesis was wrong. <laughs> we've got, we've, we've, we're back in business, yeah. baby. So that report, along with the pandemic, had an immediate chilling effect on people entering our field from medical school. And in 2022, they experienced the sharpest decline in the number of students applying for emergency medicine residency spots on record. It was down 17%. That's, that level of decline has never happened previously. 
One thing that was somewhat overlooked from that original Marco paper was that it assumed an attrition rate of around 3% based on some historical averages in previous literature. The authors of this paper basically say that if we're going to panic about this, we should have better estimates of the attrition rate. Because if the attrition rate is off by as little as just 1%, it has a big impact in you know, how that surplus shakes out. So the purpose of this study was to use Medicare data to estimate the number of emergency clinicians entering and exiting the workforce in a much more contemporaneous time frame from 2013 to 2019. And those are the last years for which Medicare data is available. So that, that would be, you know, give us more accurate estimates of attrition and entry. They also examine if any trends that we see vary according to urban versus rural locations. And there's a few other sort of state-specific analyses that are interesting, but I'm not going to go into uh, for the purposes of this summary. Again, they use the 100% sample of Medicare claims data to identify providers who generated at least 50 bills for E&M codes each year between 2013 and 2019. They then simply calculate how many providers leave the database year on year. That is, they had a bill in 2013 and they don't have any bills in 2014. And then how many of those doctors re-enter the database at a later time or enter it for the first time at any point during the study period. I'll spare the gory details because it's, a, it's very technical how to do all this kind of stuff with big Medicare billing data, but they do a very well-reasoned, well-described analytic approach. And I think that it creates relatively unbiased estimates, certainly for the trend analysis, if not for other things. So what'd they find? Through the study period, 4.6 to 6.5% of emergency physicians left the workforce annually. About 1% of them returned. So the net is that the permanent attrition rate is more like 4 to 5% instead of 3%. A slightly higher number of physicians entered or re-entered the workforce during the study period so that there, there is a net modest increase in the number of emergency physicians from 33,000 in the beginning of the study period to 37,000 towards the end of the study period, a number that is much more sustainable in the long term, assuming that there's continued ED population growth, which there has been. So, yay! This is really good news. Working conditions in the ED are so much worse than previously expected that the annual attrition rate is actually really bad. And so your jobs are safer than previously thought. You're looking at me quizzically. No, I'm just, that's, that's a disheartening it's message. A, hey, you know, I know, it, I know. And it, it is one of these things. It's like, okay, good news. The, but, jo the, job, that, the jobs look better. The job forecast for incoming people look better. But bad news, it's because the job is so terrible, you're going to yeah, leave well, earlier I than think, we anticipated. I think for me, I, I, I'm not disagreeing that could be the reason, but that's quite an assumption that people left because they didn't like it. What is the job? Did they die? What happened? Well, maybe they got like a job of doing something they really wanted to, an industry job. They right, something it. else that's better than their ER job. Just, well, maybe it's- That's not good. We're supposed to be having a job. You could do, we train people for a de you know, decade. And then they, they attrit at a 5% rate? That's good terrible. That's terrible. Well, you talk good know. for them. And if they it's went to awful, something they like even awful. better, I think it's- It doesn't a, make any sense. Sure it does. They spent their life training to be an emergency physician and then they're gone 5% per year? That's crazy. That can't be good. That can't be good. No, no, no. No. Terrible. 
is terrible. It's good for incoming people because there'll be jobs for you, but there's like some serious back end work that needs to be done to make sure that, you know, this isn't uh, that, you know, we're making a job that, you know, people like to do for a career. You know, he's like, I could see it both ways. I really can. I really can. I see it as, you know, maybe, you know, what's the attrition rate of other medical specialties? Lower. Well, what is it? Well, they didn't study this one, well, but it's typically much lower than that. We don't 2%, know that. No, we do. It's, they, they talk about it in the paper and in other papers. If this attrition rate is really high. Maybe we're getting promoted to CMO and stuff like that. I'm a, I'm a glass half full you, kind you, of guy. You think that 2% of emergency physicians per year get promoted to CMO? No, but if only 0.5 do, then <laughs> that takes 0.5. the number down to... 0.5. I'm just saying it may not all be doom and gloom, I, No, friend. it's not all doom and gloom. That's the point. Is that it's, it's like, paradoxically, it, it actually is good news for this. So, you know, the thing is that this report that said there's going to be this huge surplus, coupled with generally people being like, why would you want to work in the emergency department and get COVID and die? Like the early pandemic period really had a chilling effect on people. I, I understood your point we yeah. made it the first time. I'm just not sure I agree with it. No, no, but you're missing. So it's good that the, the, if there's space, we, we're actually not disagreeing No, we're saying the same thing. We're, we're not saying disagreeing. That the, the, the fact, there's not going to be the massive surplus of docs that we thought. That's, That's the, good. And that should encourage young people to feel like this is a good job. But there is a discouraging tone about it that a lot of people are leaving. Now, maybe they made all so much money that's in their 20 what, years. There you go. That's <laughs> like, the glasses. It's such a full. lucrative job that you only have to do it for like six or seven years and you can bounce. Um, See? But I don't that's, think that's, that's entirely um, accurate. Editor's commentary. This is an extremely thoughtful paper focused on estimating the pre-pandemic attrition rate for emergency physicians. Understanding this rate is key to estimating any surplus of emergency physicians that might be expected in the coming 10 years. The key finding that attrition is closer to 5% suggests previous estimates of workforce surplus may be overestimated. Welcome EMA listeners to the October 2022 Ultra Summary. I'm Jess Monis and here with Jenny Beck Esme. Jenny, I wanted to take a minute to mourn the loss of Dr. Jim Roberts, who recently passed away. Jim was a longtime member of the EMA family. He is a true legend and one of the first physicians to be board certified in emergency medicine. He literally paved the way for all of us. I feel fortunate to have been able to know him, and our hearts go out to his children, Martha and Matt. Jim's contributions to emergency medicine will live on forever. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. And now let's return to one of the things that Jim did best, talking about high quality emergency care. Jenny, are you ready? I'm ready. I can think of really no better way to honor him, right? Absolutely. All right. Paper number one, predictors of laryngospasm during 276,832 episodes of pediatric procedural sedation. Sedation-associated laryngospasm in a child is a rare life-threatening event that can strike fear in even the most chill emergency physician. So, can we predict who is more likely to get it? Out of a quarter million patients, only 0.3% had it. They found that independent risk factors included younger age and higher ASA category. The odds of getting laryngospasm were about four times greater with concurrent respiratory infections and three and three-quarter times greater with airway procedures. Adding additional agents to propofol increased the risks, such as in ketofol. The big take-home here is that these events, 
even with and without risk factors, are few and far between and should not deter you from sedating when needed. That's reassuring, ultimately, right? I mean, when you have to do it, you have to do it. It's nice to know it's not as common as maybe you, we were thinking. Right. Paper number two, restriction of intravenous fluid in ICU patients with septic shock. The conservative versus liberal approach to fluid therapy in septic shock in the ICU, or CLASSIC, trial is a multinational ICU-based study of patients with septic shock who are randomized to usual care versus restrictive IV fluids. Their primary outcome they were looking at here was all-cause mortality at 90 days, and they had secondary outcomes that included developing AKI, ischemia of the brain, heart, or limbs, and the number of days alive without life support in that 90-day window. The treatment protocol here seemed to have been followed pretty well, with the restrictive therapy group actually receiving less fluid during the study period. Nevertheless, the outcomes were identical across the groups, with a 42% mortality in each. Secondary outcomes, including, like I said, AKI, similar across the treatment groups. Ultimately, to me, this is another reassuring study. Both groups did about the same, so I don't think it's going to really change my practice much. I'll keep giving fluids when they seem appropriate, when the patient needs them because they're dry or hypotensive. But if I have concerns about that big slug that CMS wants me to give because the patient seems wet or has an ejection fraction of 10% or something like that, well then, I'm going to continue to hold off and write my little justification in my chart. Great. And keeping on the restrictive fluid theme here, let's talk about the ED in paper number three. Restricted Fluids versus Standard Care in Adults with Sepsis in the Emergency Department, a Multicenter Randomized Feasibility Trial. The authors wanted to see if emergency physicians would follow a restrictive fluid protocol for septic patients without shock. Turns out, most would, with only one-third violating the protocol in the restrictive group. The restrictive arm got a total of about half a liter of fluid compared to one and a third with standard care. Although this study was not focused on clinical outcomes, there was no difference in adverse events, mechanical ventilation, vasopressors, AKI, length of stay, or mortality. Perhaps the tide is finally turning on excessive fluid resuscitation and sepsis. Paper number four, effect of -of point-of-care testing for respiratory pathogens on antibiotic use in children, a randomized clinical trial. So, does knowing a kid has a specific virus that's causing their upper respiratory infection cut down on our antibiotic use? Well, in this study, children presenting to a single pediatric ED with a fever and or some URI symptoms were randomized to get a nasopharyngeal swab by a nurse and a point-of-care PCR that was capable of detecting 18 viral pathogens or just the usual care that they got at triage. The primary outcome was the prescription of oral antibiotics, and secondary outcomes included things like ED length of stay and use of other diagnostic tests like chest x-ray. Antibiotic prescribing was the same across both groups. Interestingly, the use of radiologic imaging did not differ across the groups either, and neither did the cost of the ED visits. The length of stay was a tiny bit longer in the intervention group, in the group that got the testing. So, The indiscriminate use of these tests at triage just wasn't very useful. But as Mike points out, that really could be because there's a lot of these patients in whom the viral diagnosis just isn't in doubt. So antibiotics and a chest x-ray and all that were never really on the table. Looking at this test in a cohort of patients in whom the clinician is really torn would probably be more useful. Right. I mean, because if I did the test and I saw they were positive for something, 
I'd be like, okay, we're done. It's viral. We're done. Right? Right. And that would definitely make me less likely to prescribe antibiotics. So I agree. It depends on which patients you're looking at. Right. I mean, so this test was given at triage. And so there was really no thought, you know, is this, this kid looks great. It's clearly viral. We're never going to consider anything else or the kid who you might be concerned about, you know? So it's that patient population where I'd like to see this test used and see if it changes management. Makes sense. Paper number five, intranasal topical application of tranexemic acid in atraumatic anterior epistaxis, a double-blind randomized clinical trial. So last month, we reviewed another paper on TXA, which seemed to add a nail to the coffin, but this double-blind RCT from Iran takes a crowbar to open it back up. 240 adult patients with epistaxis, not controlled by pressure alone, were randomized to cotton plagettes soaked with either phenylephrine plus Lido or phenylephrine plus Lido plus topical TXA. They found that the TXA group had a 15% lower rate of anterior packing. The rate of staying in the ED for over two hours was 10% less with TXA, and they were half as likely to re-bleed in 24 hours. Prior studies have failed to demonstrate that TXA can save you as a last-ditch effort, but perhaps when introduced at the get-go, it can be helpful. Sanjay questions whether this is TX-nay or TX-yay, but I say TX-may-bay. TX may bay. I mean, we're just going to keep going back and forth on this TXA debate until I retire. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Paper number six, catching those who fall through the cracks, integrating a follow-up process for emergency department patients with incidental radiologic findings. Incidentalomas are very common. And as we have discussed previously on EMA, we don't always do a great job of communicating these findings to our patients. In this paper, Vanderbilt University Hospital Emergency Department, their radiology department, and their IT departments created a process to identify these patients and refer the cases to a case manager who then could tell the patient about their results and arrange for their appropriate follow-up. Sounds pretty cool. Now, how this is done does involve some click boxes for the ED doctor that I can just imagine would be the target of gripe in many emergency departments. When the radiologist sees a significant incidental finding, it is flagged as a critical finding, and the ED clinician has to click through some boxes that then route the case to a case manager and so on. No one likes more click boxes, but this does actually sound less intensive than figuring out how to explain the finding to your patient yourself and documenting that you have done so and arranging for their follow-up. So this might be a good click box. Anyway, this paper is a retrospective cohort review of the cases of incidental findings over a one-year period. They found that for over 95% of these cases, there was a documented communication to the patient with a follow-up plan. How many patients went on to get that follow-up, who can say? But this does seem like a really good start. You know, and I think it's a great start. I, yeah. You know, when it comes to incidental findings, I feel like that's the thing that will get the emergency, you know, clinician because it's the thing that you're not focused on right then, mm -hmm. right? But it's a thing that who knows in months, years, grows, you know what I mean? You, so you don't want to be on that end of that. So I think having any process that will make sure that these things get followed up and brought to the attention of the patient is good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only do we not want to be on the receiving end of that from a medical legal perspective, our patients think that if they're told that everything's normal, then everything's normal, right? And there's right. nothing that they need to follow up on. And if there is something there, we owe it to them for their health to make sure that they know how to follow that up. So any way to simplify that, I think, is going to be great. Yeah. Paper seven. 
early food intervention and skin emollients to prevent food allergy in young children, a factorial multicenter cluster randomized trial. The old school teaching to prevent food allergies was to withhold high-risk foods for a while, but more recent trends have swung toward early intervention. The authors in this study further explored this by introducing not only foods, but skin emollients to see if it made a difference. The groups included no intervention, skin intervention with moisturizers and bath additives, food intervention with early feeding of peanuts, cow's milk, wheat, and eggs, and a combo of the skin and food approach. The early food group was clearly the winner. Only about 1% of the food and combo group developed allergies compared to 2-3% of the skin and no intervention group. So Jenny, what did you do? Early food. We did the early foods, those big four that you mentioned right away starting actually around four months. And then a lot of the other allergies starting, we did basically one allergen a week until we got through all of them. And then we're trying to kind of just maintain at this point, making sure that she's exposed to all of the different allergens at least once or twice a week. I remember the first time I gave my older one, you know, like peanut introduction, Mm -hmm. I gave him some Bamba, which, you know, for those of you that don't know that, it's basically like the peanut equivalent of a cheese doodle. Mm -hmm. And um, I basically, I like, I had Benadryl there. I like, I had everything ready to go. Really? I gave it to him and I was, I just like stared at him like a hawk. Yeah. I was like, I don't know, I was prepared. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had some Benadryl in the, in the medicine cabinet, but I wasn't terribly concerned about it. I don't have a lot of food allergies in the family, so I wasn't super worried it was going to be an issue. Yeah. But, you know, maybe I should have been more concerned than I was, but we've gotten this far. She's eaten, (laughs) I I think she's eaten everything at this point, except she has not yet done uh, any shellfish. Yeah, we don't do shellfish, so. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? (laughs) Another question I have on this paper, the skin emollients, were those also foods? Those were foods that were mixed into the skin creams, or were those some other kind of environmental allergen that they were trying to use skin creams to? I think it was just skin creams with the thought that, you know, kids with like atopic, you know, dermatitis Uh or, or skin reactions would be more prone to allergens. So keeping them moisturized could help prevent that. I, I'm not really see. sure. Oh, But okay. it, it, right. it was not like they were smearing them with like peanuts or milk. Okay, okay, okay. Paper number eight. Pericapsular nerve group block for hip fracture is feasible, safe, and effective in the emergency department, a prospective observational comparative cohort study. Rick Bucata Award, right? <laughs> but I'll give you the details. Here you go. This pericapsular nerve group block theoretically could be more effective than the other blocks we typically use for hip fractures. It potentially hits more sensory nerves and spares at least some of the motor nerves, which might make transferring the patient or doing neurovascular assessments easier. This is a small, prospective, single-site observational study looking at the effectiveness of the different block techniques. Patients received the nerve block at the discretion of the treating clinician, either a fascia iliaca block, a femoral nerve block, or this paracapsular nerve group block. And they basically found that all the blocks worked similarly. Now, a randomized control trial that actually directly compares all three of these blocks would really be needed to compare the techniques, but this is another tool you can add to your toolbox. Paper number nine, staying on the theme of blocks here, periosteal block versus intravenous regional anesthesia, IVRA, for reduction of distal radius fractures, a randomized control trial. This study compared IVRA, aka the beer block, to a periosteal block for distal radius fractures. We've talked about IVRA back in June, which is when you insert an IV distal to the injury 
inflate a cuff proximal to the injury, and inject some lidocaine. For the periosteal block, 15 cc's of 1% lido is injected on the radial side, 6 centimeters proximal to the wrist, aiming at the dorsal and ventral surface of the bone. Pain scores were lower in the IVRA group with less need for adjunct meds and remanipulation. So it appears that IVRA is the winner. Paper number 10, Prevalence and Clinical Significance of -of Point-of-Care Elevated Lactate at Emergency Admission in Older Patients, a Prospective Study. The idea behind this paper is very interesting. So we are doing more and more lactate levels as part of our basic kind of screening lab work. But we don't really know the prevalence of an elevated lactate in just all ED patients. And we also don't really know the prognostic value of a level outside of sepsis and trauma. In this paper, a research nurse drew a lactate level on all patients over age 65 who presented to this one ED during their business hours. They found that 27% of patients had an elevated baseline lactate level. And in their statistical analysis, they found that the serum lactate was not associated with poor clinical outcome. Now, this is just a small single-site study, but it might make you think twice before reflexively ordering a lactate level if you aren't looking for something specific. That elevation could lead you astray. Yeah, absolutely, right? If you have like a one out of four chance of it being elevated. Yeah, I mean, especially when you kind of just automatically think, oh man, it's elevated, they must be septic, and you're starting to throw antibiotics at them and whatever, when that doesn't match the clinical picture, it could be dangerous. Draw at your own risk. (laughs) Paper number 11, Diabetic Ketoacidosis Fluid Management in Children, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. So while three RCTs were included, out of the 1,450 patients, 95% came from the 2018 New England Journal of Medicine study which we reviewed in December of that year. So in essence, this paper is just a rehash of that conclusion. The original study compared fluids containing half-normal and normal saline, as well as a fast and slow rate. I placed the latter half in quotes since both the fast and slow rate were within community standards and not that far off from each other. As per the original paper, this SIRMA found no difference in GCS group cerebral edema, or length of hospital stay, regardless of the fluid used or the rate given, as long as it was within an acceptable range. Listeners, you need to know two things. First of all, she snuck in Surma. Well done, Jess. <laughs> I was hoping you. you would get it in. We're going to keep that going, you guys. You're going to hear Surma every month until it catches on. And second, when she said she put it in quotes, she actually literally put it in quotes. Jess and I are both hand talkers, so sometime maybe we'll do a video version of this so you can just see exactly the wildness that is happening (laughs) as this recording is going on. All right. Paper number 12. Clinical outcomes following implementation of a formalized flashers and floaters emergency department triage protocol. Flashers and floaters can be caused by posterior vitreous detachments, which are not an ophthalmologic emergency, or by retinal detachments or retinal tears, which are. These authors at Mayo in Rochester created a guideline for how these patients could be managed. Patients were eligible for deferred opto-evaluation, which meant they got an exam within 48 hours, but not in the ED, if they had flashers or floaters, preserved visual acuity, no visual field cuts, no recent surgery or trauma, meaning within 30 days, and no personal history of a retinal detachment. All other patients required immediate opto-eval. 
In this paper, they look at the people who were eligible for that deferred pathway, and they wanted to see whether any emergent diagnoses were made or would have been missed by using this deferred approach. They report that no patient with preserved visual acuity, no visual field cuts, no history of trauma or surgery, and no personal history of retinal detachment, those are the key things there, none of those patients were diagnosed with a retinal detachment, and therefore it was safe for them to have their optoevaluation deferred for up to 48 hours. But there are some limitations, and Mike talks about these in detail. They don't stick to the protocol that well, and we don't really know how this standard approach would just compare to usual practice. But this does give us a place to start when we're trying to triage these patients and decide just how hard you want to push that ophthalmologist to come in at 3 a.m. on a Saturday night. Mm. Paper 13. Evaluation of first-dose intravenous push penicillins and carbapenems in the emergency department. Push-dose antibiotics are great. It doesn't have to be mixed, hung, or run, so it can be given fast and it won't tie up your line. The authors of the study looked at ampicillin sulbactam, piperacillin tazobactam, and ertapenem given as a push. They found that time to administration was 30 minutes less in the push group, and 8% more got it within 60 minutes of ED arrival. No difference in safety events were noted, but the data on this was pretty sparse. There's a great review on this topic from April 2021's Pharmacology Rounds. I highly recommend listening to it, and the written summary there also includes the antibiotics that are safe to be given as a push. I love the idea of push-dose antibiotics. Like you said, less time, not tying up your IV, nothing has to get mixed. I will point out also one under-discussed benefit is the patient's not hooked up to an IV, so when they need to go to the bathroom, they're not calling people over to unhook them from their IV. (laughs) They can just Mm. get up and go, right? Good point, good point, yeah. (laughs) Paper number 14. More antibiotics here. Defining antibiotic inertia, application of a focused clinical scenario survey to illuminate a new target for antimicrobial stewardship during transitions of care. This is a vignette-based study of ED providers, internists, and intensivists at a single institution trying to see how ED antibiotic choice influenced the subsequent provider's choice. They gave the ED docs different scenarios and asked them to choose the antibiotic they would give. The authors then determined whether that antibiotic was considered broad or narrow spectrum and whether it was an appropriate choice based on their hospital's guidelines. They then surveyed the internists and the intensivists with the same scenarios, except that they varied up whether the ED doc had prescribed a narrow or a broad spectrum antibiotic. And they asked that internist or that intensivist which antibiotic they would continue the patient on. According to the authors and their definitions, the ED docs often chose an inappropriate antibiotic. And when they did, this had a big effect on the inpatient doctor's choice, who had a roughly two times higher odds of selecting an inappropriate antibiotic if the ED doc had done so. Now, the appropriateness question isn't really the main point here. These weren't real scenarios. They maybe were written in a way that kind of allowed the doctor to pick an inappropriate antibiotic. But what is important to note here is that our choices mattered. We get the ball rolling, and then it can be hard to turn the moving train around or some other such mixed metaphors, right? It's good to keep in mind when we're selecting our antibiotics that we can't rely on our next team to fix our mistakes. It seems more likely than not, they're just going to keep perpetuating them. Hmm, who knew we were so influential? I mean, I did, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Paper 15. 
High prevalence of fluoroquinolone-resistant UTI among U.S. emergency department patients diagnosed with urinary tract infections 2018 to 2020. In this multi-center observational study, the authors found the rate of E. coli fluoroquinolone resistance to be 22%. That means that we are prescribing the wrong antibiotic for one out of every five people we hand a script for Cipro or Levo. Some may say, well, I don't prescribe it for high-risk people. But one-third of those with resistance had no documented risk factors. Make sure to check your local antibiogram, but this is just another reason that fluoroquinolones should not be your go-to for UTIs. Yeah, I think that that's, yeah, nail in the coffin for that here. Paper number 16, radiologic imaging does not add value for female pediatric patients with isolated blunt straddle mechanisms. This is a quick take. The paper is really a description of the types of injuries seen in female peds patients with perineal trauma that was not a result of sexual assault or penetrating trauma. These patients can obviously be challenging to assess. Over the 14-year period, they had 83 patients who met their study criteria. Of these, 42% had a labial injury, 30% a perineal injury, 15% a vaginal injury, and 1% a urethral injury. Now, of these patients, only 13% had radiology studies performed, and none of those studies showed any pathology. The authors use this to conclude that radiology studies aren't needed in these patients. Now, that might be true, but this is a very small patient population, so probably not a large enough cohort on whom to draw such a definitive conclusion. They also found in this study that just over half of the patients were taken to the OR for an exam under anesthesia and almost all of those had a laceration repaired. Apparently, ED procedural sedation wasn't an option at this institution during the study period. But these patients quite possibly would benefit from sedation, either in the ED or the OR, to get a full evaluation and potentially a repair. Paper 17, Remote Investigation and Assessment of Vital Signs, RIA vs Proof of Concept for Contactless Estimation of blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, and oxygen saturation in patients with suspicion of COVID-19. The RIA VS consisted of a tripod with a high-speed camera, one red LED light, and one infrared LED light. The camera was connected to a laptop, and the patient was recorded for 30 seconds. This was compared to a reference standard using an automated BP cuff for blood pressure and heart rate, manually observed respiratory rate, and a pulse ox for the O2 sap. The authors found that on average, the vital sign measurements were close to the gold standard, but there was lots of random variation. Overall, we're not there yet, but cool to see that a no-touch system is not out of our reach. Very cool. Paper 18, Workplace Violence in the Emergency Department, Case Study on Staff and Law Enforcement Disagreement on Reportable Crimes. ED violence is far too commonplace and anecdotally seems to be getting worse over the course of my career. It seems likely that true criminal acts are occurring and are being underreported. This study wants to look at whether ED clinicians and law enforcement officials agree on whether or not certain patient behaviors are criminal. The authors provided scenarios and asked the respondents who were either members of the ED community or law enforcement to rate whether each scenario was a reportable crime or not. The scenarios are all very plausible. One, 85-year-old man with dementia became agitated and punched a nurse. Two, a 25-year-old drunk man spit in the face of a phlebotomist. Three, a 70-year-old woman with abdominal pain 
who became delirious in the ED, threatened to hunt down her treating physician once she was discharged. And four, the mother of a one-year-old became irate when she was told she would not be prescribed antibiotics for her child's URI and threw a chair that almost hit a medical student. Mm. There was strong agreement within and between law enforcement and ED staff that scenario two, the drunk guy who spat at somebody, was a reportable offense. But that's where the agreement stops. For the other cases, including the one where the mother threw a chair, not only was there disagreement between ED staff and law enforcement, there was disagreement among law enforcement itself, which poses a challenge because if law enforcement can't even agree on whether these acts that are committed in our workplace break the law, how in the world are we supposed to know when they do and when we should go through all the effort that would be needed to pursue some sort of justice? This points out a major area for further work to define what constitutes reportable violence and create guidelines that we can all use. Yeah, and the question is, if we had a viral PCR panel, would the mother <laughs> still have thrown the chair? I don't That's know. That's a good question. I don't know. All right, paper 19. Use of a real-time locating system to assess internal medicine resident location and movement in the hospital. Big Brother is watching. The authors of this study used a tracker to see how much time interns spend at the bedside. Turns out, not that much. Only 13% of their time was spent in patient rooms. One-third was spent in the workroom, which is not surprising given how much of our time is spent documenting. There was variation between specialties with those on oncology spending the most time at the bedside. Overall, a sad state of affairs. I feel like we've seen this in other papers before, too, or just... You think you're going into medicine to be with the patients and you're really going to medicine to type on a computer. Yeah. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> Paper number 20. The 2013 to 2019 Emergency Medicine Workforce, Clinician Entry and Attrition Across the U.S. Geography. I'm sure many listeners remember the data that came out a few years ago that suggested that we are facing a huge EM physician surplus. This was by Marco et al. in Emergency Medicine Physician, if you want to look back at it. The authors of this current paper argue that we need to have a better estimate of the attrition rate of EM physicians before we all panic about this surplus. The Marco paper assumed an attrition rate of 3% based on some previous literature and historical averages. But if that's off by even as little as 1%, then the surplus that was predicted could completely disappear. Add to that the decline in medical students entering EM, probably because of the pandemic, and we could have a much more complicated picture. These authors use Medicare data to estimate the number of emergency clinicians entering and exiting the workforce from 2013 to 2019. They found that 4.6 to 6.5% of emergency physicians left the workforce annually. Now about 1% of those ended up actually returning, so the net permanent attrition rate is more like 4 to 5%, which is not the 3% used in the Marco paper. This suggests that more ED clinicians are leaving the workforce than we previously thought which perhaps isn't a great reflection of what it's been like to do our job over the last decade, but also suggests that the future job market may be a little safer than we thought. You know, that's true. And also, I mean, if you take a look at the COVID era, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of physicians, I feel like, left medicine, you know, whether they did like an early retirement or right. just a mm -hmm. retirement or just kind of got burnt down. They're like, you know what, I'm done. But it'd be interesting to compare those numbers to the ones that we see in this paper. Absolutely. This is all pre-pandemic, so I think it's going to have to be repeated, you know, now that we've had uh, what seems 
anecdotally speaking, obviously, like a mass exodus. Right. Well, with that, we end our October EMA Ultra Summary. It is August when we're recording, which means I have a little bit of time left to figure out my Halloween costumes for self and child. But, you know, October is my favorite month of the year. I'm very much looking forward to it. I hope you all enjoy the fall and have a spooky Halloween. <laughs> Bye. It's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Welcome to the October Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is Swami here, as always, with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ken Milne. Ken, how's it going? Well, uh, it's going well, and happy Halloween, one of my favorite holidays in the year. And you picked a great topic for Halloween because diagnostic uncertainty, ooh, it can be scary. <laughs> There's nothing more frightening to an emergency physician than diagnostic uncertainty knocking at his door. Boo. <laughs> All right, Ken. Well, I want to give you a couple of cases that I saw the other day. I was working in Fast Track and I had three notable cases with a common threat. I had a 50-year-old man who came in with wrist pain after tripping on an uneven sidewalk and he had a foosh injury. He presented with a distal radius fracture that we found on x-ray. Second patient was a 32-year-old woman who had a foreign body sensation in her eye. It turned out to be a speck of rock that flew up there while she was riding her bike. And the third case was a 46-year-old man who presented with a two-centimeter lack to his left thumb that he got while chopping vegetables. Ken, can you see what the common thread is between these three cases? Oh, I think I do. There is diagnostic certainty with each of these three cases that you presented. And that's something that I think can be what people think of as boring in fast track and other people will think of as absolutely the best part of working fast track is when you have these very simple, straightforward presentations where there's really not much question around what happened or what's causing the symptoms the patient's presenting with. Relatively easy evaluations, diagnostic closure, and clear therapeutic steps. And the reason that we highlight these cases or that I'm highlighting these cases is because it's rarely what we see when we work in the emergency department. Yeah, exactly. Diagnostic certainty is less common than we would like to admit, while diagnostic uncertainty is much more common than we're comfortable admitting. I would say that those three cases, that would be the only three cases with clear diagnostic certainty on an average shift. Most of the time, we are trying to see what we think is the most likely thing, what we should do to help to evaluate the patient. And it's tough because we want to tell the patient what's wrong with them and what they need to do to take care of it. What's the next thing that they need to do? And we understand when there's diagnostic certainty. Sir, the x-ray shows a distal radius fracture. We're going to give you some pain medicine. We're going to line up those bones, slap on a splint, and then you're going to follow up with an orthopedic surgeon in about a week. But it's much harder when we're not certain. And you sent me a great little viewpoint article published in March 2022 in JAMA Understanding and Communicating Uncertainty in Achieving Diagnostic Excellence by Maria Dom and Carmel Kroc. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this article. And it's only two pages long, but it's so full of wisdom. I mean, they start out the article by encouraging excellent diagnosticians. And I, I think we like to think of ourselves as being excellent diagnosticians. 
to acknowledge and embrace uncertainty. They want to normalize how ubiquitous uncertainty is in the diagnostic process by having physicians openly discuss the issue. Now, Swami, you and I, we're both physicians, and so we're going to accept that challenge, and we're going to talk about diagnostic uncertainty. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about it with each other. We're going to come back to talking about it with your patient, because I think you and I talking about diagnostic uncertainty is far simpler than how we talk to our patients about it, but that's really important. We'll come back to that. Let's start with Kroc and Dom's definition of uncertainty. And one of the things that they really focus on in that definition is the point of view. Yeah, so diagnostic uncertainty has been defined from the clinician's perspective as, quote, the subjective perception of an inability to provide an accurate explanation of the patient's health problem. I think this is the part that we understand quite well because we see patients like this all the time. Somebody comes in with abdominal pain, maybe we do some blood work, maybe we do a CAT scan. We don't find anything at the end of it. We kind of throw our hands up and say, I'm not sure what's causing the pain. That's what we say to ourselves. But I think what Dom and Kroc also talk about is the uncertainty for the patients. They might doubt the diagnosis or treatment plan that we come up with based on what we're finding, what we're seeing. And one of the central issues there is whether we are really addressing the concerns the patient has or if we're dismissing those concerns. Yeah, Swami, there's already anxiety built into this emergency medicine encounter that we're having. And patients will second guess themselves at times. You know, they may think, should I go to the ER for this pain that just feels a little different? And then if they feel like their concerns are being dismissed by the clinician because of diagnostic uncertainty, it can impact that therapeutic alliance we're trying to establish with patients. Certain populations may be more vulnerable to this situation. The extremes of age, so the very young or very old, certain racial backgrounds or socioeconomic status. And so we really need to be keyed in to what it is that the patient's asking. And, and, you know, master clinicians talk about this all the time, is asking the patient, what are you concerned about? And that's a really important question to ask. With the certainty of uncertainty in clinical care, what do Dom and Kroc suggest that we as clinicians actually do? Well, the author suggests we lean into it. We lean into that uncertainty with a positive attitude embrace it, own it, and communicate it to our patients. They acknowledge this type of training was unlikely to have occurred in medical school or residency. And I can confirm I did not have this type of training in my medical education. Our education process is designed to find the right answer. And diagnostic uncertainty can feel like we're failing our duty. And there may be shame and guilt connected with that uncertainty. I think that shame and guilt is really important. And coming back to how we learn as medical students and as residents, we learn to find a diagnosis, tell the patient what they have, and then give them treatment. And it often doesn't really accept the fact that we sometimes don't find that answer, especially in emergency medicine, where we're working within the confines of a certain amount of time and a certain amount of knowledge that we have of that patient, not having the follow up the background and all that information to really understand what's going on with that patient in front of us. And so it is really important for us then to be able to talk about this. And Ken, again, we're talking about it, but I'm not even sure that we do a great job as clinicians of talking to our colleagues and our trainees about that uncertainty. 
And it is difficult to discuss that with our colleagues. I think it's very difficult to say, got this patient with abdominal pain. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's wrong with them. But I think it's even harder to discuss it with the patient. And the authors also give us some tips of how to do that. Yeah, the authors emphasize that the entire team needs to be on board to effectively communicate diagnostic uncertainty, to avoid diagnostic error and patient harm. They talk about diagnostic error being a failure to find an accurate and timely explanation for the health problems or failure to communicate that explanation to the patient. And the authors think the definition of diagnostic error should be modified to include failure to communicate uncertainty explicitly. It is really important to communicate that uncertainty and to communicate it really well so the patient knows that while you may be giving them a diagnosis, it may not be the right diagnosis. And so we have to accept that uncertainty in the case. And so Ken, I want to give you an example and see how you would take care of that patient. So I have a 35-year-old woman who's on oral contraceptive pills, and she presents with shortness of breath. Her vitals look pretty good, except for a little bit of tachycardia at about 102 beats per minute. The ECG shows mild tachycardia, but otherwise is completely fine. Your exam is unremarkable, but you do consider pulmonary embolism in this patient, even though they're pretty low risk because they do have oral contraceptive pills. They do have that small amount of tachycardia. And so based on that, you decide to get a D-dimer. Now, many times when we say you get a D-dimer, we know where that's going, but this time, this time, you get a value back that is below your lab's cutoff. It is a negative D-dimer. We don't talk about negative D-dimers very often, Ken, but this one comes back the way that you would like it to. It's a negative D-dimer. Now, this makes PE highly unlikely, but it's not 100%. So now that you've done this evaluation, you go back to the patient. How do you have that discussion with the patient of what's going on, what the blood work shows, and then what your diagnosis is? Well, the first thing I do, and this is not in front of the patient, is I do my happy negative D-dimer dance. Yes. Oh, yes. It's a negative D-dimer. Yeah. And so once I've done my negative D-dimer dance, then I go see the patient and I would explain to them that we have this pathway that we follow to determine if you have a blood clot in your lung. We start with deciding if you're high risk or if you're not high risk for this serious condition. And it's more likely that you're having an infectious process causing your fever, your fast heart rate, and your shortness of breath. And it's much less likely that it's due to a blood clot in your lung, even though you're on birth control pill. So we've considered the possibility of a blood clot, and we did a special test, and it came back low. And this means we have a low chance before we even did the test, and that's combined with a low chance based on the test. So if you take low, and you times it by low, you get very low, but you don't get zero because there's no zero risk in medicine. But if we continue from here to try to get to zero, we could cause more harm for you. I like that way of approaching it. And, and sometimes people think this is too complicated for our patients to understand. And I don't think it is. I don't think it's too hard for them to understand what we were thinking about, what we were concerned with what test we got, and then the fact that no matter what we do, we can't get that risk to zero. And sometimes, Ken, I'll even say, I can even get a CAT scan, and that's not going to make the risk zero. So we just can't get to that point. And what we try to do is get to the lowest point possible. And the other thing that I often will try to end those visits with my patient is saying, 
even though we are comfortable with sending you home today, we understand that sometimes we make errors. And so if something changes, if you're concerned, I want you to come back and see us again. And it leaves open that possibility that even though we're physicians, even though we have all this training, we still can be wrong. And I think it's important for the patient to know and understand that so that if something happens, they do feel comfortable coming back and saying, hey, I don't feel good still. I'm worried that something else is wrong. Now, when we go back to this particular patient, this 35-year-old woman, we got the negative D-dimer. The rest of her labs also look completely fine. And after a little bit of reassurance, the patient feels better. The tachycardia has gone away on its own and you are ready to discharge her. So how do you phrase that discharge? Well, I would say, I think we should treat you as a common chest cold and not as the less common blood clot in your lung. But if your condition changes, so you get more short of breath, you're getting chest pain, you start coughing up blood, or you're worried, you can always come back to the emergency department and be seen again. And you know what, Swami? I think when we're communicating this type of stuff to patients, most patients just want to see that we care, that we're trying, and that we care about them. They're not looking for perfection usually, and they're not expecting perfection. What they're expecting is that we take their concerns seriously and we do an appropriate workup and understand that there is no guarantee. I completely agree. And I love that you end it with come back to the ER. So if, if there's a problem, if you're concerned, come back, let's take another look. Let's make sure that we're not missing something serious. And I think it's also important with leading off this workup when you're seeing the patient, when you're examining them, of making sure to ask them what they're most concerned about. Because you might see, 35 oral contraceptive pills, shortness of breath and say, oh, I'm worried about a PE. I'm going down that PE route. But the patient might be worried about something completely different. And so it's really important for us to ask the patient, what are you concerned about today? To make sure that we address those concerns. If we don't do that though, this last bit where you come back in, you tell them the tests that we did, what we found, what we didn't find, what our concerns are, that opens up one more opportunity to ask the patient again, are there other things that you're concerned with? Because again, that makes sure that we're not dismissing their concerns and that we give them as much closure as we possibly can about the things that are worrying them today. In conclusion, Ken, the authors give four key points for diagnostic excellence. And you said it up front. We all think we're great at diagnosis. We all think we're excellent, but this is how we can do better. This is how we can strive for that diagnostic excellence. I know it's not your favorite number, it's not five, but it's four. They gave us four. You're going to add one. I, I know you're going to add one. So what are their four points plus your one point to make five points that we should remember about clinical uncertainty? So here are the four points that the authors gave. The first one was diagnostic uncertainty should be shared explicitly with patients. Failure to communicate uncertainty contributes to diagnostic error. The second point was Understanding diagnostic uncertainty can be enriching by incorporating perspectives from medicine, social sciences, and the humanities. The third point was diagnostic uncertainty should be reimagined as a positive and routinely embraced in the clinical care and education. The fourth point was explicitly acknowledging, managing, and communicating uncertainty promotes a robust diagnostic safety culture. All right, and here's the fifth one I came up with, Swami. You ready for this? I'm ready. Let's do it. Well, of course, it uh, comes from Star Trek. 
But it's okay to say, I don't know. And there's a quote that Captain Kirk says in the original series, and it is, You know the greatest danger facing us is ourselves, an irrational fear of the unknown. But there's no such thing as the unknown, only things temporarily hidden and temporarily not understood. I love that quote. I think it's a great one. And Ken, I just want to bring it back to somebody else that we both have a huge amount of respect for, Professor Richard Feynman, who very explicitly says over and over again, it's okay to say, I don't know. And I think that he himself says, I say, I don't know all the time, because that is part of our exploration. It is part of how we perform as human beings and how we learn more, not just about our patients, but about the world around us. But I think in this specific case with our patients, being able to say, I don't know, allows us to ensure safety for the patient. Instead of discharging them and saying, yeah, that shortness of breath is nothing. Go home. You're okay. Instead of that, it opens up the door and says, you know, we're not finding anything today, but if you're worse, if your symptoms are getting worse, if you're not getting better, come back. Let's take another look and see, because sometimes we don't know exactly what's going on. Well, Swami, the longer I practice medicine, the more comfortable I become with uncertainty. And as I reflect on the various specialties we get to interact with, I think that emergency medicine tends to have more comfort with uncertainty because we're working in a chaotic environment, like you said. We have a thin slice of knowledge about the patient in front of us. And yet, even though we have limited information and a lot of uncertainty, we still are able to make clinical decisions and move forward. We're not paralyzed by indecision. And so I think that as a general statement, I think emergency physicians tend to be more comfortable with uncertainty, but I think we can do better at explaining that uncertainty to patients. And a lot of trainees are going to be listening to this, Ken, and I think that that's an important message for them to hear. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to say, I don't know. And I think that you're right. We are a little bit more comfortable with that in emergency medicine. All of the medical disciplines need to embrace it. And we're not perfect by any means. And you're right. As you gain more experience, you become more uncertain. You become more uncertain in a good way. And I think you're better at embracing that and discussing it with your patients. Ken, I, this is a great topic. Like you said, this article is only two pages long. So we always want the listeners to read the articles that we talk about. But this one's a really quick read. And I think it gives a lot of insight into how we can perform better and do a better job for our patients. Great topic. I love that you picked this one. And I can't wait to be back next month and have another topic that we get to chat on. Yeah. So diagnostic uncertainty doesn't have to be scary. <laughs> I am going to dress up as diagnostic uncertainty for Halloween. You will see me <laughs> at your doorstep and you better give me some candy. I will. All right, Ken, until next time, remember everyone out there to stay nerdy. Look at us. And we we did... are done, friend. This is October afternoon edition. I got to say. Felt pretty good. Felt pretty good. I felt pretty good. And the thing is that the reason we did the day one is that we used to do it in the afternoon commonly and we were just too tired. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on because I've been working a lot recently and I feel totally exhausted and yet I feel really good right now. I think for me, it was like I had the opportunity to kind of course correct a little bit in my morning because, you know, I like had we done it this morning, you know, as I was telling Mike when he was driving over here, 
Rhea woke up kind of early, which she like never does. That's so unusual. And it's like, ah, oh, of course, the day I got kind of I got to get up or come kind of suddenly. She's like crying, daddy, daddy, you know, in the middle of the night. And had I had to tape three hours later, would have been bad. But because I had a few hours to myself in the morning, I got some work done. Did a little workout. I kind of got to get my brain right again. Didn't got the course correct. But you did not effectively shave. Because guys, we haven't talked about this, but I'm staring staring at Sanjay Aurora with the world's most grotesque mustache. (laughs) There are are good-looking mustaches out there? I said you have the world's most grotesque. Not that you don't have. I think they're, uh, first of all, I'm not claiming that. It looks really great. That's not oh, what I'm saying here. I, I didn't. I yeah. I'm not saying you said that. I'm just saying it's a fact. I'm just. Oh, I, it's I'm definitely an, not the worst. I'm an observer. It's definitely not the worst. You know, they say people who can do should do, and those who do not should teach. <laughs> so, so you should teach people I how should, to grow a good-looking mustache. I should. I should. <laughs> I should teach you to respect. Those of us who could grow a mustache in a week. That's that's what I'm trying to say. And you know what? I'm loving it. I'm just I'm feeling I'm feeling good about it. See, this is this is part of my paradoxical and and sort of backdoor way of making Sanjay keep his mustache because you, you tell him how bad the it more looks, people he'll spite the, it. The, the more people spite, who tell me don't like don't like it, it's gonna go from sort of like a you know, a little something to like a Selic. I'm yeah. going to go full Selic. And then what are you going to do? By the time you come next month, I'm going to have a handlebar. You have no sense of what's going on. And that's going to be in the November episode. But for October, I think that this one's in the books. It's in the books. And, you know, if you're going to be ugly, Sanjay, while we're waiting to tape this next one, at least stay classy. You know what? <laughs> Let me just take one more second before we close this. Can we agree... That pretty much everyone in the Anchorman movie, we take that quote from Stay Classy, had a mustache. So, if so facto, stay classy. rid of habeas corpus, it is classy. And I'm staying classy. Now you stay classy. No, you stay classy. Now everybody, stay, stay classy. classy.